Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more, more from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. This episode of the In Search Of More podcast, titled Let Go and Let God, is actually the very first webinar that I recorded. It's not the first episode on the podcast, but it is the very first one. I'll tell you the story of that. When the coronavirus pandemic hit and the lockdowns ensued and a lot of us were in fear and panic and unsure of how disruptive this would be to our lives, the thought occurred to me that a lot of the lessons and insights that in some way I've been forced to gain from recovery were suddenly beneficial to a population much larger than addicts. You know, and we know this in recovery in a lot of ways, and the authors of the 12 Steps talk about the fact that they didn't create the 12 Steps. It's They formulated in that way. They put it into 12 Steps, but the ideas aren't theirs. The ideas aren't new. What they did is they took ancient wisdom and they encapsulated it into 12 steps, but this wisdom was beneficial for everyone, or so they thought, is that these things that have helped me overcome so much over the last eight years were profoundly beneficial during the pandemic as well. And in some ways, in many ways, in all ways, I was incredibly grateful for the lessons I learned in recovery. And it's for this reason that I said, hey, addicts need to start talking more. And I reached out to a number of people who are familiar with the recovery community for one reason or another, and I asked if they would participate in a discussion with me. And we titled that discussion, Let Go and Let God. Rabbi Chase Taub, who joined me on this podcast, often says that for the average person, spirituality is a luxury. For the addict, it's a necessity. So March 29th of 2013 was my original sobriety date. I happened to be on Pesach that year. And for those unfamiliar with this term, the original sobriety date is the day we started tracking um, our abstinence from our drug of choice. Now, as it happens, it's not my current sobriety date, which means that I had a relapse or a slip since then, but it is my original one. And that's important for many reasons, but mostly for what it represents. So for the purpose of today, let's call my drug of choice pornography. In uh, other settings, I've discussed more about this um, and more about my drug of choice. But for the purpose of this, let's use pornography. March 29th is certainly not the first time that I promised myself I'd stop watching pornography. <clears throat> it's a promise I made to myself many times. So why is this date etched in my mind forever? Why do I talk about this date? It's not the date that I sober from, and it's also not the date that I first made the promise. So why is this date important? And it's important because it's the very first time that I let go of this fantasy that I had control over pornography. It's the very first time that I turned to another person and said, you tell me how to do it. I'm willing to take someone, else, someone else's advice. I gave up on trying to figure out a way of this, out of this myself, and instead I asked for advice. I would have to imagine that most people live their life never having to get to that point of having to turn themselves over to another person's idea of how they should live their life. We never need to enough. So today, 
seven years after the first time I made this commitment, we're here. And we have an event titled, Let Go and Let God. Now to be sure, on March 29th of 2013, I didn't let, I let go, but I didn't let God. I didn't believe in God then. I'd gone to yeshiva for too many years to believe in God. That took years of trying to undo a relationship and understanding that I thought I had. Growing up like I did with the God all around me in Crown Heights, an Orthodox Jewish community, can be a major handicap when one comes to the decision to try to develop a personal relationship with God. The only type of relationship with God that I would like to humbly submit is of any importance, a personal one. So now I've spoken for quite some time this afternoon without mentioning the dirty word, coronavirus. So what does this event have to do with coronavirus? And if it doesn't, why are we even here? Why would we do anything that doesn't have to do with coronavirus? If it's on everyone, everyone's mind. So I gotta be honest with you. Today's event has nothing to do with coronavirus, but it also has everything to do with it. On the one hand, the concept of letting go and letting God has predated coronavirus by many years. For myself, this is a journey, like I mentioned, that has been going on seven years. I believe seven has some important uh, ramifications. I'll let the rabbis talk about it if they like. Now, I want to add a small disclaimer. I said there are two types of events or talks one may do. One is when someone finds something and they say, I want to share this with the world. Let me tell you about it. And the other is when someone says, I'm searching for something that I believe is really important. And why don't I invite you in on my research? Why don't I invite you in on my search? So this is definitely the latter. I haven't found anything in terms of this intersection, the compatibility, the seamlessness between Judaism and recovery, but the search has been extremely important in my own life. And I suspect that anyone with a similar background to me, growing up Jewishly religious, will also find it extremely important in their own healing and their own recovery. Nevertheless, it's far from complete for me. It's ongoing. It's a search that continues. I once heard Chase Taub, who's going to be speaking in a couple minutes, say these words. He actually yelled these words. He says, I don't want to ever hear from another person that went to yeshiva their whole life that the first time they heard about God was in the church basement, was in a church basement at an AA meeting. I am very much that person, someone who went to yeshiva his whole life, but the first time I really heard about God was at a recovery meeting. The only thing was that no one told me in yeshiva that they really weren't talking about God. They said they were. I found out many years later that they were talking about religion, not about God. Two very different concepts. As the saying goes, religion is for people who don't want to go to hell. Spirituality, God, is for people who've been there. So God is an uncomfortable topic to discuss. And it, only after, it often only comes after someone has found God. And by God, I mean the acronym, Gift of Desperation. So back to coronavirus. I said that this has everything and nothing to do with coronavirus. I say that because that feeling of desperation that I so vividly recall seven years ago, where I was finally truly listening to the, truly listened to the advice of another person. That's a feeling I think almost every person has now. I don't know anyone who isn't directly or one step removed from someone with the illness. And if they don't, they either have a ton of recovery or are still in denial about the virus. My thoughts since this has happened is that those who've been forced to practice spirituality in a deeply meaningful way have something to share in these moments that everyone can benefit from. So I bring to you a panel of six people, all men, all Jewish. I know, not so diverse. Tell me about it. However, all instrumental in one way or another in my own journey and search to reconcile the God that I learned about in a church basement with the God of my ancestors, a Jewish God. 
my expectation from today is not necessarily that you will hear a thought that will take all the confusion and pain away. My expectation and hope is that you'll be pleased to be invited into worlds where truth can be spoken, to be made aware of a community who aren't afraid to say that it hurts, to say that they're scared, and most importantly, aren't afraid to hear that you are. A community of people who aren't afraid of exploring truth, speaking truth, and hearing yours. The church basements are closed and so are the synagogues. Sounds like Rabbi Shea's got his wish on some level. All we got left are Zoom calls. So welcome, welcome to this event, Let Go and Let God, a conversation about spiritual principles and developing a personal relationship with God that can be leaned on to get through life. Now I thought the most important way, or the most useful way to organize the flow of speakers was to have them speak in the order, the same order that I was introduced to them. And when I say introduced to them, not their name, but in, the, in this world, combining recovery and Jewish spirituality. So a very short time after I decided to let go and listen to advice of another person on how to live my life, I ended up at the Shabbos table of Rabbi Schneer Kaplan. Rabbi Schneer Kaplan is not the first person who will be speaking, he will be the second. Now, unbeknownst to Schneeni, as some of us refer to him, but certainly known to the coordinator of it all, Rabbi Kaplan offered me a very important book to read that evening. He said, I read this book, I think you'll like it. He gave me a few books, but one of them, which is a book which changed my life and introduced me to this concept, the concept of there being a compatibility between recovery and Judaism. The book is called God of Our Understanding. And if the only thing you take from this event today is that the book is a worthwhile read, this event would have been a worthwhile event. So without further delay, I'll open this up to Rabbi Taub, the author of said book, God of Our Understanding. And after that, each of the speakers on the panel today will share a short thought, some of it recorded, some of it live, and then we'll open it up for a question and answer. Some of you should see on the Zoom uh, the opportunity to Q&A. So, Rabbi Taub, let's get you going. Thank you, Reb Eli. Thanks for putting this together. Thanks for inviting me. Um, it's good to be here together with everybody virtually. I was told that my opening remarks should be limited to about 45 minutes, so I want to get uh, right to the point. I'm joking. Tell me. Well, you'll find out how long. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Erev Shabbos, Friday, was the second day of the month of Nisan, which is the yard site of a very influential, very important rabbi, uh, the fifth rabbi of Chabad. And I want to tell you a story about him. Um, once a man came, to, this is a story that the, the, the rabbi, the seventh rabbi told about the fifth rabbi. Once a man came to the, the fifth rabbi, the, we call him the rabbi Rashab, and uh, he came to his room, his uh, holy Yechidus uh, Tzimmer, that's the private audience, the room where private audiences were held. And he asked for a bracha, a blessing, for some type of serious matter. I don't know what it was. I'm not sure that that is uh, known. Whatever it was, he asked for this blessing. And the Rebbe Rashab told him, I can't help you. The guy turns around, he walks out, and he's standing in the, uh, the hallway that leads into the, the Rebbe Rashab's room, and he's bawling. Now, the Rebbe Rashab had an older brother named Raza, or Rebzalman Aaron. 
In fact, uh, for 11 years, the Rebbe Rishab didn't officially accept the title of Rebbe because he had an older brother. And out of deference to him, he, uh, he waited all that time to accept the leadership. At any rate, the older brother, Rebbe Zalman sees this guy standing in front of the Rebbe Rishab's room, and he's crying. So he asked the guy, what are you crying about? He says, I was just in with the Rebbe, meaning your brother, your younger brother, and I told him about this problem, and I asked him for a blessing, and he tells me flatly, and I can't help you. So now I'm, you know, now I'm in real trouble. And uh, that's why I'm crying. So the Rezal, like only an older brother could do, yeah, his younger brother was, was a Rebbe, but still, younger brothers and old, older brothers, you know, that dynamic. So the older brother marches into the room, and he says, this is the way you do business. There's a guy outside <clears throat> beside himself. He's bowling. The Rebbe Rishab says, send him in. So the Rezal goes back out. The older brother goes back out. He says, the Rebbe will see you. Sends him back in. The guy comes in. The Rebbe Rishab gets up. He puts on a Gartel prayer belt, gives the guy a blessing. The guy leaves. And in short time, the blessing that the Rebbe gave was fulfilled. Okay. So, like I said, our Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe, told that story, and he asked a couple questions, simple questions. I don't know how long this story was known for, and if anyone ever asked these questions before, before the Rebbe asked them, but the Rebbe asked some questions, pretty obvious questions. Once you hear them, you, you can't hear that story again and not have these questions bother you <clears throat> until they're resolved. One question is, what, what, what did the Rebbe Shab mean? I can't help you. <laughs> Two minutes later, he did. I can't help you. Two minutes later, he did. Second of all, let's say for whatever reason, at that moment, he couldn't help him. Something changed in two minutes, whatever. But still, the guy comes in. If you can't help him, at least show him compassion, at least try to appease him, at least try to comfort him, console him, get words of support. Don't just tell him, "Ah, I can't help you. So the Rebbe answers this by explaining the secret of how to allow blessing into our lives. The secret of getting a blessing is not so much that the blessing comes to you, it's that you're able to receive it. In fact, blessings are raining down all the time, but we need to have a cup in order to catch it. Or more aptly put, we need to be a cup. To be a cup means to be an empty vessel. A full vessel cannot receive. You know, like they say, humility is teachability. If you can't listen, if you can't hear, can't receive, nothing new can come into your life. That's with information, you know, that's with being teachable. And same thing is with blessing. An arrogant person, a self-reliant person is like a full cup. Blessing can't come into his life. An empty vessel, an empty vessel can receive. And one who continues to be empty continues to receive. So here's the explanation of the story. The guy came in, he asked for a blessing. The Rebbe Rishab saw him that he was a full vessel. On some level, whatever that means, is he had self-reliance. Maybe he was relying too much the fact that the Rebbe would fix his problem and make it go away for him. Whatever it was, he didn't have that brokenness to him that emptiness to him that is the vessel to receive blessing. So the Rebbe Shab told him the absolute truth. I can't help you. 
Even if I'll pour blessings down on your head, you're a full cup. You're not going to be able to receive it. So he told him the truth. I can't help you. The guy goes out and he's crying. The older brother sees the guy crying, goes back to the Rebbe Shab and says, this guy's outside completely destroyed. The Rebbe Shab hears that and says, ah, perfect. Send him in. We can work with that. And the guy came in as a broken person, as an empty person. And the Rebbe Shab said, here's your blessing. We know, fortunately, unfortunately, this is just the reality, that reasonableness is almost inextricably linked with desperation. I think uh, it was Abba Ibn, the famous uh, Israeli ambassador to the, to the UN, <clears throat> great uh, diplomat and intellectual. He said about diplomacy, he said, he said, nations are like people. They uh, only listen to reason after all other options have been exhausted. What we're seeing right now in the world is a special window of reasonableness. But as we know, it's a window. Self-reliance comes back. And uh, we all know there will be re a return to normalcy. I mean, this will pass. Gamze Yaver, this will pass. And there will be a return to normalcy, unfortunately. When life gets turned upside down, when there's a disruption, the worst thing that could ever happen is a return to normalcy. When life gets turned upside down, when we're finally desperate enough to listen to reason, when we're finally desperate enough to have the humility to allow all possibilities into our lives, like that broken guy who was finally broken enough to receive God's presence in his life, or like the person who walks into their very first meeting and is finally, because when anyone who walks into their first meeting, I'll tell you one thing, 100% that I can guarantee you'll put down good money on it. When you see them at their first meeting, you've met them on the worst day of their life. They didn't come, <laughs> they didn't walk into their first meeting on the best day of their life, or even the second worst day of their life, the absolute worst day of their life, or the day after the worst day of their life is a common one as well. And that's a precious window. That's a precious window. And the good old timers are like the Rebbe Shab. They don't tell the guy, oh, you're in luck. We're going to make all your problems go away. Do what we do and everything's going to be fine. No, they tell him the truth. I can't help you. Who am I? I'm just a guy. But some of us can tell you our story. We can tell you what worked for us. We can tell you the miracles that God did in our lives. And if you're willing to listen to it, if you're willing to entertain the possibility it could work for you, and if you're willing to do the same work that we did, then probably I would expect great miracles will come to pass for you as well. So <clears throat> I think this is a lesson in recovery. This is a lesson in life. This is a lesson about what's going on in the world right now. We have a precious opportunity right now where people are open to reason. And uh, hopefully we'll have the right response to it. The right response is, A, God forbid we should never return to normalcy. But how, 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 
We should never squander this disruption by returning to normalcy. Obviously, if normal was good enough, God wouldn't have disrupted it. But B, <clears throat> I think we have to have that message that um, the destabilization is a gift for those who are willing to go, go through it humbly. And um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all I have to say about that. I, I want to mention one other thing because uh, I, I'm not watching the clock, but I'm trying to be sensitive to time because I'm the first speaker. Um, I'll just tell you very quickly. <clears throat> one, of my, uh, one of my guys I think of when I think of really solid recovery was a guy I knew in Pittsburgh, a guy named Jim. And uh, just very quickly, I'll tell you Jim's story is that he was a chronic relapser for a couple of decades. Um, and then finally something clicked, I guess, like we're saying, you know, he got desperate enough. And he finally found recovery, meaning he'd been to the rooms and he'd tried working the steps, he'd had sponsors, but it was never really in earnest. And then finally, one time, for whatever reason, it, everything clicked and he started to really do everything. And he said that, that, that the last time he got sober, he worked all of the steps in the matter of, I, I think, a month or two months, like a month or two. And, uh, you know, very quick, got down to work and uh, everything was great. Then he says that six months into his sobriety, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And he had little children at home. And he said that uh, for a year and a half, he did not have the luxury of going to a meeting. For a year and a half, he was taking care of his dying wife, and she died of that disease. Um, he says, people question, you know, how did he stay sober? Did he relapse during that year? And a half? he only had six months sobriety. And now he's facing that kind of stress, taking care of little children in a home. He said he didn't go to work. He didn't go to meetings. He didn't do anything. He was just taking, keeping, taking care of that home. And he says, you know, did I, did I, did I relapse under that uh, situation? He says, no. He says, that's really what uh, sealed it for me, that the sobriety was real this time. He says, because uh, for a year and a half, from the moment I woke up to the moment I laid my head down on the pillow, I was of service every single second. I was of service. I had no option but to be of service every single second. So I just wanted to mention that because I know <clears throat> we're in a situation right now. I mean, Jim's story when he got sober was in the 90s. So there weren't the type of online meetings and, and call in on the phone meetings. So we don't even have that dilemma nowadays. I mean, nowadays with technology, I mean, look right here, <laughs> it's through technology. So there's so many options available to us, but I'm saying <clears throat> even if the isolation right now is uh, quote unquote, an impediment to one's ability to uh, make use of certain tools of recovery, I would, I would beg to differ. And I would say that, uh, I don't know, maybe they'll do uh, tests on this, uh, <clears throat> research on this after the whole thing is over. You know, uh, in the big book, it talks about the, the early AAs who went to World War II, right? Bill W. was a World War I veteran. They came out with the big book in the 30s. So 
the second decade of, of AA had people going off to World War II. So he said people, a lot of people were saying, all your guys are going to relapse at the front. They're going to go off to, to Europe or to the Pacific, and they're going to relapse because they're not going to have their support system of, of, of the meetings and the rooms. And uh, it's written in the big book. He says, we are very pleased to, to see that that's not at all what happened. To the contrary, these were the people who had the best <clears throat> these were the leaders in there, you know, in, in, at war, the people who boosted the morale of other soldiers, and they didn't relapse from it. So what I'm saying is right now there's a, there's a so to speak, there's a war going on. And uh, like, like I said, maybe they'll do research on this. Maybe they'll be so inclined to look into this afterwards. But I wonder how many uh, doctors and nurses who are, um, who are addicts in recovery are going to relapse during this time. And I would bet you... I would bet you it's very, very few. With all the stress and all the strain, um, they don't have time for the ego to creep back in. They're being forced into absolute selflessness every single second. And if uh, all of us will keep that in mind as well, to stay in a mode of selflessness and service, uh, that's the greatest insurance policy for ourselves. So what do I mean, bottom line? You know, pick up that phone or do the Zoom conferencing or whatever technology Hashem gave us and be of service, check in on everybody. See, we're used to checking in on a newcomer, you know, a guy with one week, two weeks of fragile sobriety. Hey, how you doing? Now it's about everybody. Call old people, call your parents, call neighbors, call people with pre-existing medical conditions, call anybody, call parents who have little kids at home. Everybody right now needs a call. So you could be of service literally from the moment you get up to the moment you put your head on the pillow. You could be like Jim being of service all day, just calling people all day. How are you doing? How are you holding up? All you have to do is just give them a call. You don't have to have anything profound to say, and, and, and you're literally saving a life, and you're practicing the 12th step as well, practicing the principles on all of our affairs. And that is the greatest thing we can be, be doing right now is uh, being of service to others. And if we're in that mode, then, you know, nothing can go wrong while we are, while we're taking care of others that are, Shliach mitzvah, an emissary for God's will, will uh, come to no harm. And not only will come to no harm, but will uh, benefit. We know that one who shares with another benefits 1,000-fold, is refined 1,000-fold. Okay, thank you for the opportunity to, to join everyone to speak. I'm going to be quiet and listen now. Thank you. Thank you, Rebshez the thoughts, thanks for the words, and thanks for the, uh, the example, right? the example of service, getting on here on a Sunday afternoon. So I mentioned that uh, Rabbi Schneer Kaplan gave me uh, the book, God of Our Understanding. Until then, until that point that I read the book, I imagined that in my recovery, I would have to find a different, a very different God than the one I was raised with, brought up with. And this because that was working for me, right? The God that was slowly being introduced to me in recovery started making sense to me. And I said, okay, this one, like, I can dance with this one. And so it jives with me. The one that I heard from, for a while didn't. So I thought they were mutually exclusive. And the book painted the possibility, it still sits there as a possibility, but painted the possibility that they don't have to be mutually exclusive and that they can, can, be, can be combined. Once that possibility was painted, it also dropped a host of resentments and maybe even a word stronger than resentments. I think in a, one of my early meetings, I, I, uh, I used the words, I hate God, right? So maybe there's a, a word stronger. And these things kind of started to shift. Now, uh, Rav Schneer Kaplan is not too far from me. He runs a Chabad house 
the Jewish Chabad Jewish downtown, I believe, about 15, 20 minutes from my office. And from time to time, he would come and we had a chavrusa. So slowly, I started inviting more and more people to this chavrusa. And it started a shir, which we had a small hiatus for a couple of years. But about two months ago, we started up again. And we borrowed the uh, tagline from Chase's book, Jewish Spirituality and Recovery from Addiction. And that's the, uh, it's a weekly share that Rip Schneer began to host. And it's been extremely impactful for myself, for Schneer, I believe, and for the others who came. Just a place where someone can uh, listen and speak and share, like I mentioned, but also be introduced to an old God in a new way. I think it was Marcel Proust who said, the world is not about finding new destinations, but about looking at the old with new eyes. So that's part of the uh, journey for me. Rip Schneer, we'd love to hear some of what you have to say. So. There we go. And so good to see all of you. I don't see everyone. I see the panelists. But it's really, really good to be uh, together with all of you. And I want to thank Ellie for being such an incredible facilitator and bringing all of us together, recognizing that there is a tremendous, tremendous opportunity here for each of us to strengthen our spiritual connection, to expand our consciousness. So thank you very much, Ellie and to all of uh, the rabbis who are here, and especially to Rabbi Shays, uh, who opened this discussion, and uh, whose book somehow miraculously um, ended up in my hands, and I have been able to share it. Of course, I sh I've shared it with Ellie. I don't think anybody has shared the book as much as Ellie has shared the book, but uh, I'm really grateful that I was able to share that with Ellie and to be invited into uh, a community of incredible people and as I mentioned many, many times, uh, often I'm doing the speaking, but really I am more of a student than a teacher in this community. And so I thank uh, all of you for, uh, for teaching me. I thank all of you for, uh, you know, last week when we got together, maybe it was last week or the other week, actually last week it wasn't because we were virtual, but the last time that we met physically uh, in the Mic Drop Theater, with our Wednesday shear, with our Wednesday group, uh, it was just, it was unbelievable to see the serenity that was, that was reflected on, on the faces that were there. And only because these were individual people uh, who had experienced hell on earth, who had found the spiritual path, and for them it was business as usual. Um, not to say that they were not reacting to what was going on in the world. You're very much in touch with what's going on. The confusion, the fear, the suffering, the pain, and so on and so forth. But you're living in a place of transcendence. So, just want to share some of the things that I've been struggling with. And certainly I would uh, welcome and appreciate your uh, feedback. It's no secret, as we mentioned before, that uh, there's, uh, there are very few degrees of separation between us and somebody said the other day that, I think it was some rabbi that suggested that we stop using the name of this virus. You know, in Yiddish, uh, we refer to uh, the big one as Yenemaiser, uh, Yenemachla. So this Yena virus that we're dealing with, uh, there are very few degrees of separation between each and every one of us and somebody who is suffering from this virus. 
If I can mention a dear friend of mine, Avram Meir Akain Ben Alizo, needs a refu shalema b'seich sha'ar chayle ame Yisrael among all of those who need uh, healing. So I, I heard this story before. Um, Eli Wiesel was once giving a talk, and somebody in the audience asked him, why, why did God allow the Holocaust? And Eli Wiesel turned to him and he said, you must be a Nazi. And he said, a Nazi? I'm not a Nazi, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. I'm simply asking the question, how could God allow this to happen? So Eli Wiesel doubles down and he says to him the following, why are you asking me for an answer to that question? Because if I gave you an answer, you could just put it away very neat. Ah, that's why God allowed the Holocaust. So now I can put it away, I can file it away. It no longer bothers me, it no longer disturbs me. He says, I don't want an answer for the Holocaust because I never want to be comfortable with what happened. And I know that all of us today are desperate for some kind of perspective. We're hoping for some rabbi, some spiritual leader to say, uh, this is why it's happening. You know, this is where it's coming from. And in many ways, I don't want that answer. I don't want that answer because I don't want to be comfortable with what's happening. Ah, that's why these people have passed away. It's bigger than me. I believe that we have an opportunity here, as Rabbi Shays mentioned, and I think that this is the objective of this webinar of all of us coming together. There's an opportunity here that perhaps, perhaps if there was too much perspective, we would squander this opportunity. We, we might step over that opportunity. We had talked in the last few shiurim, in the last few sessions, about how when the Jewish people left Egypt, that they emptied Egypt of all of its wealth. And the idea of emptying Egypt of its wealth was not only the material wealth that they took with them, of course, but it was also the wealth of experience, what they had absorbed in their suffering in the 210 years that they spent in Egypt. What had they learned? Messages. What messages? And I think that there's an opportunity here for the same thing. We're going to get past this. We're going to get through this. Before you know it, we're going to be looking over our shoulder at what unfolded. But we have a real opportunity here of Ayinatslu to take advantage of this situation. There is something for each and every one of us to learn. There is an opportunity for us to grow. And so I will share a story, something, uh, the story actually is a story about Rabbi Meir of Primishlan. And uh, tradition had it that the mikvah, the ritual bath, which is part of the uh, daily structure in many communities, that the way we begin our days, we immerse ourselves in this ritual bath, purifying ourselves, it's a rebirth. And then we, we take on the day. So the mayor, of course, would go to the mikveh daily. And the tradition has it that in Primishlan, Primishlan was uh, on, maybe on a hilltop, and the mikveh was down below. And in order to get there, you'd have to make the trek every day down to the mikveh. 
Now winter would come and snow would fall and it was icy and it was basically impossible to get down to the mikvah. Impossible. And most people would give it up and they'd wait for the weather to warm, for the ice to melt so they could get back to the mikvah. But a mayor would still go to the mikvah every day. Somehow he could make it down and make it back up. And people would say, a mayor must be a miracle worker because there's no way to get to that mikvah without miracles. And the story is that there were a few young kids there and uh, they, weren't, they weren't excited about the idea of Reb Mayer being some kind of a miracle worker. Ah, it's not a big deal. It can be done. You don't need any special spiritual powers to get this done. And they make the attempt to go to the mikvah and of course they take a few steps, they slip and fall and they're bruised up and Reb Mayer comes to visit them and they said, Rebbe, now that we've tried it, we know, I mean, it's, it's just impossible. How are you doing this? How do you manage to make it down to the mikveh and back to the mikveh every day? And the mayor said to them in Yiddish, that when one is attached above, they don't fall below. When one is attached above, they don't fall below. So we have an opportunity here to strengthen our attachment above to learn more Hasidus, to put ourselves more into the recovery. And maybe, as we say in our, in our uh, third step prayer, take my life and my will and guide me in my recovery and show me how to live. So I thank you for inviting me uh, to be part of this incredible community. And uh, those are my few words. We look forward to uh, to your book. I'll I'll give it out also. <laughs> Definitely. So next, uh, Mayor Mayor uh, Kessler. You mentioned the name Mayor. Mayor is a big name. Mayor Kessler will be sharing a few words uh, with us. So I met Mayor last year. I heard his name a lot over the years, but I met him last year for the first time at his annual. A Jewish recovery retreat weekend. And um, I went, Mayor asked me if I would speak. And it was the first time I went, I'd heard about it. But I guess I heard about it, I think, before I read Chase's book, just this concept of a Jewish recovery retreat. I was like, why would I want to mix it to worlds? Why would I want to go to a, a place where a bunch of Jewish people practicing recovery? Like, I'll stay away. But anyway, after years and years of hearing about it, I actually went last year and I was, I want to say pleasantly surprised. I was blown away. It was an extremely impactful um, weekend and a real blending of, of the two worlds in, in an actual way, not in a book, but in a very practical way to see people who are practicing it. And Mayor opens it up. He doesn't, it's not just people in recovery, but it's their family members or people with curiosity. Even rabbis, a couple of rabbis came and thought they were coming to speak and then they found out they're coming to listen. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, extremely powerful. Um, what, uh, what Mayor does. Mayor, I, I listened to Mayor on a podcast he did about a month or two ago, and he had some really insightful ideas about uh, the way that many of us on the outside view recovery. And Mayor came about it honestly. Mayor went on Shlichus to a place that happens to be like the hub in America of recovery. So he starts bumping into people that all of a sudden are not so excited about the Chaims and Farbrengans and the you know, with the alcohol, but they're much more interested in practicing for Brengans in the real way. 
right? The religious uh, gatherings. And uh, Mayor has learned a lot and has a little bit to share. So Mayor, please, if you can introduce yourself. And just one thought, there's a question and answer section on this. It's a little different than a Zoom meeting. It's a Zoom webinar that allows for panelists and allows for audience participation, but not through a um, the traditional format, which could get a little disruptive. So you'll see on the bottom of link, if you click a picture, you'll see some options open up Q&A. And by all means, ask those questions that you have. And at the end of the speaker speaking, there'll be an opportunity for them to uh, answer. And I believe there's a anonymous feature as well on the questions. So if you want to ask, ask the question anonymously, by all means, but uh, the interactive portions of these are often the most powerful. So Mayor, Mayor Kessler, let me uh, unmute you. We'll get you. Hello, everybody. Um, just before I start, something shocking just happened in the beginning of this. Um, while we were preparing for the um, for this webinar, Rabbi Bressinger was on, and um, all of a sudden he said, "I must go tend to my father," and he had to leave. So I just wish a refuah shalema to Rabbi Bressinger's father. I don't know his name, but somebody does. Should have a foolish lemma, but they're Klal Yisrael, and all say Amen. Um, so, being that I'm a shtickle hypochondriac, and I suffer a little bit from anticipatory anxiety, so it's the third Shabbos now that I haven't had a normal Shabbos with the um, with the people in recovery, and it's been a very very difficult for me. I didn't realize. I always used to think that it's difficult for me to host the Shabbos. It's all difficult for me to have these programs because every single week, every single Shabbos to, to do this is, is, is hard. But I've realized so much how getting together and being together with everybody has been so, so, such a blessing for me and for my family. So what do I do? What, I was thinking, what do I do about this? It reminds me a little bit Reminds me of a story that happened to my father, Oliver Shalom, that um, he, was, he went to America Shluchas as a bachar, he went to Alaska. And in Alaska, it doesn't get dark at night. So him and another chassid, Rabbi Lipper Brennan, went to the Rebbe and asked the Rebbe a question, when should they daven myriv if it doesn't get dark? So the Rebbe answers, you should daven when we daven in 770. I don't know the time. But at that time in Alaska, it was probably like, I don't know, three o'clock in the afternoon. And the Rebbe added, which means you think about me and automatically I will think about you. So in this time, for me, at least it's lonely and it's hard, but I'm thinking about all of you. And it's not like I have to ask you to think about me. As the Rebbe said, if I think about you, and automatically you'll be thinking about me and we can strengthen each other because that's very, very important in this time. Rabbi Tal was talking about a person that's forced to be of service. The situation forces the doctors and the nurses to be of service. They don't have a choice. So those, he's sure that they're not going to relapse because they're compelled to be of service. But a lot of people aren't compelled to be of service. They have to pick up the phone and to be of service. And in order to be of service, they first have to strengthen themselves as well. So I encourage each and every one of you out there 
continue to participate in meetings, to be mechazik each other, to strengthen each other, so you can have the ability to be of service. So, and I think, personally, the service that we can do is teach others that don't have the blessing of living life in a powerlessness way, to teach them how to be powerless, because everybody is powerless today. As, as I just heard um, one of the senators on the floor talk about, you can't rely on government, you can't rely on the people in the chambers. Ezri comes from God. People are realizing that there's nobody else to rely on but And this is something that the recovery community has learned to live with. And this is something that we can teach others. And this is something that we can be of service because we've practiced this in our in, in, for many, many years. I think we've we've become experts in the idea of powerlessness. So in order what one of the things that we can do to be of service is call people that haven't practiced this concept and give them some of your experience, strength, and hope. And in order to do that, you got to take care of yourself as well and join meetings, whatever, whichever, which way possible, and be mechazik each other so you can help the entire club. Thank you for letting me share. And everybody stay safe. Thank you, Rav Mayor. So as I mentioned at the um, <clears throat> retreat uh, that Mayor hosts, it brings a lot of people together. And uh, one of the people that I met um, speaking there was Menachem Poznanski. He's speaking uh, afterwards. Menachem's a clinical social worker. He's also the author of a book, um, Stepping Out of the Abyss, A Jewish Guide to the Twelve Steps. He has, I believe, a couple of podcasts, Consciously, The Light Revealed. He's doing a lot of work. He's uh, director of The Living Room in New York. A lot of people in New York in recovery know The Living Room quite well. It's a place where... Um, Elliot, we don't, I don't hear you. You don't hear me. I don't hear you. How about now? I, you don't I, hear me now. I hear you, Kelly. I hear you. Okay, so we're going to assume that if one person hears me, everyone can hear me. And if someone doesn't, one of the things, uh, I remember in Menachem's book, at the beginning of the book, he says a story of, I believe it was a story of yourself, right? There was a, a group of 50 rabbis who were coming together to denounce the 12 steps. And Menachem stood up and said that uh, any of you guys read, you guys are talking that this is not a thing and we shouldn't be doing recovery. And a lot of them are done in church basements. Have any of you read the big book of AA? And then a single hand went up. So, you know, on this panel, we have different people, um, but both Mayer and Menachem actually are in the trenches on a daily basis in the sense that they're working with addicts really in the early stages of it. So some of it, some of us to a degree get to kind of walk through the process of recovery um, and slowly get to a semblance of, um, I don't know what it is, but some, some sense that life is in order and others are forced on a repeated basis to meet people and families in the throes of addiction. And both Mayer and uh, Menachem have the, uh, the experience that comes with that. So I'll allow Menachem to, uh, to share some words with us. Hey guys, um, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, I'm really thankful. I assume if you can't hear me. Okay, uh, I'm sure. I we can hear you. Can hear me then. Okay, good. So um, I'm really grateful. Thanks. I'm really honored to be on this panel. Um, all these Rabbanim and thinkers and people that I've learned so much from. Um, just a lowly social worker in the uh, in the trenches, I guess. Um, 
but um, I'm grateful to have a voice and to be able to uh, speak a little bit. And I appreciate the, um, the intro. The truth is it was about 50 people. There were some there people there um, trying to uh, puzzle recovery. Some were there to support recovery and some were there very confused about it. And, um, and there was a lot of opinions. There was about 50 people, so, and they were all Jews, so you can imagine there were about, there were probably uh, 300 or so opinions. So, um, you know, I just asked a simple question, which is, you know, do you have, have you, you know, read the literature that describes the book? And there were three hands that went up. There were colleagues, two, uh, one rabbi and two clinicians. Um, but it made its point. Uh, the question made its point. So just to jump off of that story, I didn't think I was going to tell a story, but uh, Ellie hooked me up, I guess. So um, so uh, I'm going to try to speak a little bit from my experience over the last uh, two weeks. I went in um, to like a self-quarantine um, about two weeks ago. And... Um, I've been trying to, you know, make it work. And of course, one of the blessings that I have of um, working with individuals in recovery is that I've learned so much from them. And uh, I feel like Ellie asked me to speak on that. So I'm going to try to speak to that specifically, which is like, what are some really core um, principles that I've kind of put to play, not only in a recovery context, but really in the entirety of my life with my family. Um, and in my work life as a therapist, you know, kind of throughout which principles have I kind of put to play. And I'm not going to so much speak to the people in recovery so, to, so much as, as much as I'm going to try to speak to just people. Because um, I, I felt like that was where the message would be most useful. So even though I'm sure that I have no doubt that some of the people on here are in recovery, some people maybe are connected to recovery, and some people maybe just wandered in wondering what they might find. So I'm going to just speak to us as humans um, trying to navigate this new maze that we've been, this new normal that everyone's been talking about that will be here in some ways, maybe forever, and in some ways just temporarily, um, and uh, trying to be our best through it. So the first thing is kind of mentioned already is operating based on spiritual principles. And that's a really powerful and important um, idea, you know, because part of the challenge of operating from spiritual principles is that I kind of know I'm going to fall short and, and I'd rather kind of get stuck in the muck of behavior. Um, you know, it, part of what happens when people are in recovery is that they very, get very, when they're trying to, um, strive for recovery, um, you know, to stop their addiction is they get very kind of caught, um, in, you know, the bad stuff that I'm doing and stop trying to do that. And one of the powerful things about recovery is that we try to stop being human doings and start to be human beings. And, and, and part of that means identifying for myself. And for me, I try to do it on a daily basis. Um, what are the spiritual principles that I want to practice today? Even though I know I'm not going to do it perfectly, even though I know I'm going to fall short, but whether it's kindness or whether it's compassion or whether it's uh, alacrity is one that I try hard because I, I don't want to get lost on, on, on Netflix or wasting time in other ways. I have this Tetris game I downloaded on my phone. I've been <laughs> relaxing with, but I can get very lost in that. And I, I don't want to, you know, so I want to, what are the principles that I want to kind of try to practice today, particularly because my life is not 
right now lacks a certain amount of anchorage um, because I'm not going out to the office. I don't go to shul in the morning to minion. I don't, you know, um, I'm not doing a lot of the stuff that I normally do that kind of keeps me grounded. I have to kind of, I'm forced to kind of ground myself, so to speak, or to ground myself in my higher power in God. And, and identifying spiritual principles is really important and powerful. And, and a lot, to a large part, they're the same every day. But, um, but some days are different. And, and that really kind of grounds me in spirituality. And that kind of touches on the beginning of the 12th step of the 12 steps of recovery. Um, or actually, the, I'm sorry, the second half of the 12th step, which is to practice spiritual principles in all our affairs. So that's like one thing that's really helped me. Um, another principle, I guess it's a little bit of a slogan that you hear in, in the rooms of recovery is this too shall pass. And that's been a really important one for me because I, I think Chase touched on this, or Chase touched on this, Arav Taub uh, touched on this. Um, you know, a lot of times it's, we're, we're, we get used to seeing our reality as if it's going to stick around forever, particularly when I'm in pain. You know, it feels like it's going to last forever. And, and I oftentimes have to remind myself that, no, this reality, both good and bad, you know, like sometimes that means I'm waking up on the wrong side of the bed and it feels like the whole day is going to, going to, going to stink. Um, or I, I'm doing well and I feel like I have this whole quarantine Zoom reality figured out. Um, and then and then that passes. And it's really important to be reminded that I live in, in ultimately a time-based reality where there's an ebb and flow of, rea of, of, of life and of my emotions and of my thoughts and of my spiritual state. And that's okay. And I don't have to fight that. I don't have to get lost. I can enjoy my current reality. I can live one day and one moment at a time without having to get lost and then scrambling to kind of keep the good buzz going or scramble to get rid of the struggle when it's there, as opposed to just kind of trying to deal with it in the moment. Another really important spiritual principle is open-mindedness. And the way that I mean open-mindedness, open-mindedness can kind of mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. But the way that I take open-mindedness is, I guess from some of it a psychological perspective, is that our brains, the way that God formed our brains is that our brains are constantly trying to find a buzz and keep it going. They're trying to find the right way to do things. Let's say like, um, I use this example a lot when I work with, and in, in I, I give lectures in high schools on substance abuse. And one of the ways, one of the things I talk about often is, if you ever watch a baby take its first steps and then kind of watch it along the path, the first time it starts to walk, the baby, he or she will be very deliberate. They'll be staring down at the ground, looking at their feet, taking very slow steps, very unsteady. And that's because their brains, their very powerful human brains are figuring out which muscles they have to move in order to get their feet balanced in a way that they won't fall over. And they have to go through a process of trying that out and they, and they walk and they fall and they walk and they fall. And then within three months, maybe two months, maybe even less, the baby's like running, holding the, the, the blanket with a bottle and a passy yelling their mother's name, they're doing six other things at the same time. And, and, and the reason that is, is because our brains are built to develop habit. They're built to find something that works and then stick there. Part of the challenge that we're in today is that everything's changed. We're in a new normal, which means we need to develop new habits. And also some of the habits that we develop early on in the process of being introduced to a new normal aren't necessarily the best. So we have to have open-mindedness to encounter a new reality to accept maybe the things that I was doing before aren't going to work for me. And maybe I need to be willing to try something new. 
that might mean for let's say someone in recovery going on a Zoom meeting, which is maybe not something they might, might have gone on before, but, but it can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. It might mean in our relationships, encountering relationships in a way that we normally don't. Like maybe I'm used to only talking to my siblings in person because I don't really like talking on the phone, but now I have no choice. Or maybe I don't like engaging YouTube, um, sorry, WhatsApp chats because they're annoying and uh, people post all sorts of nonsense. But right now that is my, the most effective way for me to feel connected to other people and to connect to my friends or any other variation. And it means having an open mind to develop a new set of habits. And it also means being open to maybe not doing those things great right away. Maybe like the little baby is kind of gonna fall down a little bit. And it's important to mention, I meant to mention in the, in the beginning, all the things that I'm talking about have kind of built one on the other. It's kind of like they are connected one to the other. I don't mean to be repetitive, but I think these are all just different aspects of the same process that I've been on. Um, the next thing has been really, really critical to, critical to me, and this is an old skill, and I found that it's, it's, it's not a new skill, but it's an old skill, it's an old tactic um, that's been really, really useful, which is really focusing in on gratitude and aspirations. And what that means is gratitude entails the process of humbly reflecting back on the blessings that I have, um, one of the powerful lessons I've learned along the way in Chassidus, particularly from the Vavich Rebbe, is that, is that humility, the foundation of, of humility is gratitude because it means that I'm acknowledging the fact that I am not of myself, that, that, uh, that I, I, I did not make my reality. I'm not a self-made man, even though I've, I've done some things, thank God, that have put me in a position to receive blessing. Um, maybe some of that is to, like what um, Rabbi Taub was talking about, to be empty enough uh, to receive. But, but part of that humility is to acknowledge the blessings that I have. And that means looking, reflecting backward and thinking about what worked right yesterday, what I did well yesterday, not because I'm the great I am, but because I was blessed to have done it right. Or to think about all the good things, like it's very easy to get lost in what's wrong in my life today. I'll talk about that in a second, but to really think about what's going right, what's going right about the fact that we can go on Zoom. The recovery community, I have to say, the not... The, the people outside of the recovery community have a lot to learn from the recovery community. The way in which we have created, I mean, the broad spectrum of the recovery community, and to some degree, the mental health community has created an entire universe online uh, of really relying on technology to really, for our own constant daily mental health. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't imagine, I don't understand from talking to my friends that they have the same level of support that, that, that people in recovery have to pick up the phone and, or pick up the Zoom and connect with a meeting on, a, on, a, on an ongoing basis. Um, and that requires a sense of humility to, to, be, to realize how much is going right in my life. And then the other one is the aspiration to look forward in a ballsy way. And this relates to the idea of spiritual principles. Like, what do I want to accomplish today? And that might be concrete. For me, it is sometimes. It's a to-do list of things I want to accomplish every day so that my day doesn't get lost. Um, but it's also like an aspiration, like, I want to try to be um, patient today. That was a big one. Um, or I want to be present today with my family. Um, the other thing is to really focus on being solution-oriented. That's something that people in recovery do really well. You know, it's really easy to get lost in what's wrong with our lives. And oftentimes, because of all the stuff that I already discussed, we have to choose to think about what's right in our lives and to think about what could be right in our lives. Like what are some concrete steps that I can take to bring a solution to this problem instead of getting um, lost in the muck of whatever's not going right, particularly when we hit those really tough times. Um, 
suit up and show up is a really important um, saying in recovery. And it means acting as if even when I don't feel like it. You know, it means putting my best foot forward in spite of whatever's going on in my life on a daily basis. And, and it even means on a practical level, and I talked about this a number of times in the other mediums that I've had an opportunity to share on, it means getting dressed every day. And that's something I've really fought doing. I think there was one day where I stayed in my pajamas uh, a little late to give myself a break, but really every day, no matter what time I was waking up to, to get dressed, to put on some clothes and uh, to get out, to try to create some rhythm in my life, to not allow myself to get lost in this kind of quasi non-reality. And lastly, this has already been mentioned, but one of my favorite authors and thinkers, Viktor Frankl, talks about his experience in the Holocaust. And uh, everybody knows Viktor Frankl, and I don't have to repeat it, but it's worthwhile repeating. It's, it's again and again, you know, Viktor Frankl was suffering in, in the camps. And he describes that one day he had a spiritual awakening and he realized that as one of the, one of the great psychological minds of the generation, a student of Freud, he had a unique opportunity to study the psychology of a concentration camp inmate. You know, that he had unique insight and that after the war, he imagines himself standing in front of a room. He talks about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, standing in front of a room and presenting before all of his colleagues, you know, what it was like to be what the psychology of a, uh, an inmate at a concentration camp was. And that would be his contribution to the field of, uh, of psychotherapy and, uh, and, and psychology. And, and that no one else would ever have this opportunity, hopefully ever again. And, and he took that. And that wasn't what ended up happening. That was part of what ended up happening. Really, he transformed the world with his book and his beliefs and, and his logotherapy. But, but it started out with the acknowledgement and the awareness that he was poised in a unique circumstance to offer a unique, unique help to the, to the entire world. And that catapulted him into a place where he wrote a book that was acknowledged as one of the most important books of the 20th century. And he's by far one of the most important thinkers of the entire 20th century of all of humanity. And, um, and, and all of that emerged out of his willingness to what he calls up, he calls uh, taking um, hold of the responsibility that the universe is giving you. Now, all of us have that within our own little universe, whether it's as parents, whether it's uh, as parents who are, who are trying to help our kids figure out how to um, navigate online school, or it's as um, children of, of, uh, of parents who aren't used to reaching out on, on technology, or it's as a friend of reaching out to somebody that, that, that is not reaching out to others. Um, we all have our unique place and we all have our unique way of giving in. And when we can shift our perspective from a, from a problem orientation, from a closed orientation, from a, from a what's wrong with my life orientation to a solution orientation and to a positive, grateful, humble, open-minded orientation, then our suffering and our transcendence above our suffering both has meaning and is tremendously holy. We invite spirituality into our lives. We practice spiritual principles in all our affairs. And that's really an amazing thing. And then this coronavirus is transformed from a, from a great um, evil and a, and a curse into a blessing. Uh, you know, and not, not to take away from all the people that are suffering, 
but but on a whole as humanity to try to take this suffering and to transform it into a blessing. Um, um, we owe that to ourselves and we owe that to our higher powers, but more than anything, I think we owe that to all the people that are suffering that are not well, the people that have passed away. There have been a lot of those notifications today. I think we all woke up to that in the Jewish uh, world, particularly here in New York. Um, you know, we're kind of coming to that place of the uh, of the shift of the of the you know the 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 the, the process, and um, we owe it to them to make the best of this and to transform our lives. And in so doing, we we uplift ourselves and everyone around us in the whole world, um, and hopefully uh, answer the the call, heed the call that the universe, i.e., God, is making of us. So I want to give you all a blessing. And, uh, and an aspiration for me as well that we, that we have the opportunity to do that. And we uplift each other and, um, and uplift the universe. Thanks so much. Ellie, back to you. Thank you so much, Manalfan. The uh, thought you shared about seeing it as a responsibility, unique responsibility, has me thinking. Beautiful thought. Now, um, the next one who'll be introducing himself, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, is a name that I've known from as a young child. I heard his name a lot. But again, it's seeing the, uh, the world with new eyes, like I mentioned. And uh, I reintroduced myself to him at the retreat, the Jewish recovery retreat that uh, Rabbi Kessler mayor holds every year. Hopefully somehow it'll happen this year. We'll see what the plans are. We're waiting with bated breath to hear what's, what's going on with the Jewish recovery retreat considering coronavirus. And uh, listening to Rabbi Simon, who is somewhat unique on this panel in the sense that he hasn't been speaking a lot about recovery. He hasn't wrote a book on recovery. He doesn't uh, run um, retreat centers or retreats. But when you listen to his message and when I've listened to his message, it's been a breath of fresh air to hear someone who's on the outside but sounds like he's on the inside. There's a um, <laughs> there's a, a book, well-known, it's a book that became very well-known in uh, recovery. It's called, um, it's by uh, an author, Scott Peck, and the name is uh, escaping me at the moment. Uh, someone's uh, someone's going to get it. In any case, uh, uh, Road, uh, on Road, Less Road Less Traveled. Road Less Traveled. And this book like went through the recovery community, and people went to Scott Peck and it's like, you know, you must have recovery, like to be able to write this book and write these thoughts, you must be a part of AA or thought of it. And he said, no, but there's certain people somehow find it on the outside. You know, Rabbi Tversky, I saw a question and answer once with Rabbi Tversky and someone said, Rabbi Tversky, I think was one of the earliest rabbis to give an okay for people to go to church basements for recovery. Someone said, but everything is there in the Jewish books. Like everything exists. Why are we going to church basement, he said, if you find me a group of people reading the Tanya, right, a famous ascetic book, or reading Musser, right, other books that deal with, you know, working on our personality, we're reading those books like their life depends on it, I'll send people to those meetings. But in the meantime, the only place I know where people read their books, these books like their life depends on it, right, are in these meetings. So I'm sending them, I'm sending them there. But it's very true that these concepts exist within Judaism as well. So the only thing I can surmise is that Rabbi Jacobson has read some of these books like his life depends on it. So Rabbi Jacobson. So first of all, thank you for letting an outsider into inside. I never thought I'd feel like an outsider. But full disclosure, maybe I'm an addict that's still in denial. 
as opposed to all of you. Um, and I don't see, I don't mean that in a humorous way necessarily. You don't always have to be someone who is abusing any substance or behavior to necessarily be trapped in your own um, perspectives and limitations. And it's true that uh, Judaism and Hasidus is far, far more appreciated by people who've tasted or experienced darkness because all reality, true reality, is uh, emerges when uh, your delusional reality is stripped away from you. So since we're speaking so openly, um, I'll say this. No, I was not... Uh, been ever addicted to drugs or alcohol or sex or uh, gambling, but I was blessed to grow up in a lot of light, sat at the feet of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But in a strange way, I always felt myself as an outsider, even in the religious world, because I was a skeptic by nature. And what I witnessed a lot was um, people in their comfort zones. So whether you're a religious person in a comfort zone or a secular person in a comfort zone, it's still a comfort zone. And comfort zones are never healthy for growth. And as such, I always felt somewhat like a foreigner because I would ask myself the question, and not do because new to the fact that I was disappointed, like Ellie, you so sadly and eloquently opened up. I was disappointed or hurt or abused in the name of religion, but precisely because I wasn't. And I was wondering whether this whole thing is in some type of mind control or program to keep people in line. And those people who indeed experience true reality, either through pain or maybe blessed by grace to see something that goes beyond their uh, cultural routines and uh, norms and habits, uh, was something that mainstream Judaism did not address. And I'm being very open Maybe due to the coronavirus, we're all more vulnerable and fragile. So we talk more honestly and bluntly. And what happened with me was actually the opposite way around. It was the light that taught me about darkness, as opposed to darkness teaching me about light. As I was a teenager and struggling with these issues, and you couldn't talk about them, articulate them, or else you get excommunicated or definitely somewhat uh, blacklisted. But for me, it came the other way around. I realized that it could not be possible that Judaism is here over 3,300 years and does not have some profound truth. Jews are just too smart. Yes, there may be some fools that you can, that you can deceive, you can brainwash, but thousands of years and all they went through and all they suffered and they're still here, where's the secret? Where's the secret formula? And it was then, and I'm not going to tell my whole biography, but I think it's very relevant to this discussion. And I really wasn't going to say this because... Uh, after hearing what you all said, I felt this is where I want to just sincerely talk from my heart. And I came to realize that the Rebbe, Lubavitch Rebbe, who I grew up around, and he was the king on the hill, but he wasn't personally relevant to me. Yeah, I respected him and all of that. But what I came to realize here, that the Rebbe, in the spirit of all great Jewish leaders, were pioneers. They were nonconformists. They were revolutionaries. It was everything I wanted to be connected to. They were the last thing from conformity and comfort zones and, uh, and, and security blankets and let's just do things because this is what the group says, herd mentality, etc. 
And then I came to appreciate Abraham, Avram Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, Mordechai, every one of them paid heavy, heavy prices and sacrifices to be individuals. And they rose up to the occasion to represent something greater than themselves. They never took themselves seriously. And that taught me about, about truth through the light in an interesting way. And it's when I began to really experience that out of my own naivete. First times I heard people in recovery, people really suffered. I mean, I heard things that were so horrendous, I couldn't even believe them. But I realized that there's a very, very dark side to life. And, um, and sometimes the way Hasidus explains it is that when you get to the highest levels of reality, God himself, what we call atzmus, the essence of it all is beyond dark and light and is beyond good and evil and is beyond any structure, identity, anything that we try to fit into one way or another. Some people fit into the light, some people fit into the dark. And when you can touch that, you really can transform everything, including yourself, because it's not about you. You're going out of every possible um, structure, every possible manifestation, the way Hasidus would put it, any gilui, any tzir, I'll explain what I mean, any form of defining, it's this and it's not that. As soon as you say that, you're already outside of true reality. It's this and not that. And most people hear that, they say, what is that? That sounds crazy. What do you mean? It's either a table or it's a chair. It's a bird or it's a, um, or it's a sky. It's a coronavirus or it's healing. No, the fact of the matter is there's a reality that does not define itself in, every, any, any, in any way, and that reality chose to define itself. I don't want to get too abstract here, but I want to bring it back to our conversation, which is the most important thing of all. Again, I'm really honored and humbled to share a few words, especially in the, in the, uh, among such um, luminaries, who have each in their own way discovered deeper truths that may, I may or may never discover. But in my own way, I'll go back to what I began by saying, you know, I, I, don't, I was thinking, should, is this an off-color joke? A joke about a Chinese prime minister? What do you think? Hey, you know what? I'll do it. After um, Mao Zedong died, Chao Enlai became the prime minister of China. This is a long time ago, 1971. And it was the first time China opened up, so to speak, to the Western world so to speak. And uh, Western journalists, for the first time, when President Nixon went to visit China, they had the opportunity to ask the Chinese leaders questions. So they asked Xiao Enlai the question, um, what do you think about the American and French revolutions, which of course are such cornerstones in the Western world? And his response was classic. He said, it's too early to tell. That's what he said. It's too early to tell. Because it's only 250 years old. The Chinese civilization is, I think, 1,800 years. And I want to say, if I was there, that I think the Chinese civilization is also too early to tell because we're around for 3,800 years. So in business, they always say, time tested. You know, they say, been in business since 1878, brewing beer for 70 years, you know, they, as if these companies still belong to their families. They create a certain type of name recognition and loyalty. You can trust us, you know, Colin error. We've been around for 3,800 years. And without question, everybody has the biggest, biggest question. Now is a time where I'm hearing this question more than ever before, but it's always been asked. What's the secret? How does a people that's barely 14 and a half million, 0.1% or whatever it is, how did you make it? 
And we made it not just with great, we had no empires, we, had no, we didn't have a state or a country just till recently, money. We were always at, mercy, at the mercy of our hosts and usually to our detriment in the worst possible way, genocides, executions, ex expulsions, discrimination, every possible way. That's the story of our lives. You want the story of recovery and of healing? You've got to figure out the formula of the Jewish people as a whole and as individually. It's actually, ironically, and so tragic in a way that when we got comfortable, when Jews got comfortable, after emancipation, when everything started, so to speak, working their way, is when the greatest levels of assimilation set in. Again, I don't want to do a whole history study, but there's a tremendous lesson to be learned. And I want to just focus on one verse. We're coming to Pesach, Passover, in just less than two weeks. And a powerful, powerful verse right in the beginning of Shemais, of Exodus, that says, always blows me away every time I read it, every time I hear it. As, as Pharaoh and the Egyptians were oppressing the Jews in the worst possible way, slave labor, genocide, Pharaoh bathing in the blood of Jewish children, on and on. As they were oppressed and in direct proportion, they thrived and they flourished. They didn't just survive. They didn't just make it. They didn't just endure. They thrived and they flourished. Find what is the secret? How did they thrive and flourish? Why did they not get depressed and demoralized and broken and so on? Which they did. It was hard for them. But still, they thrived and they flourished. And they ultimately came out of that God forsaken place. We honor and celebrate it every Pesach. I think this year, perhaps, many people will appreciate it more than ever. And we will say in the Haggadah, on the Seder night, Vihi Sha'amdalanu. And she, it's Vihi, an abstract word, Vihi. She withstood. As we went through, for us and our parents, as we went through every form of genocide or every form of epidemic you could take hold over there in every generation, something came to try to destroy us, and God saved us. So this is something we say, say tonight, we've been saying it for now almost over 3,300 years. What is the vihi? Two things, God's promise and our faith in that promise. They're both in the feminine, amuna and haftacha that we always held on to something that was greater than we are. It was God running the show. And even when there was an illusion of human control, as many people had just a four weeks ago, you asked people, how's your life? Ah, well, great, I've got summer plans. I'm going to entertain myself. I'm going to the theater. My business is booming. The stock market has never been better. I mean, the list goes on. Who didn't have plans? Travel plans. My children are at school and no worries. Everything was stripped. That whole comfort zone. And the Jewish people never were deluded at any comforts. Actually, they weren't even afforded comforts for so long. And they developed an unbelievable resilience based on this divine connection. And that lasted not just then, after 210 years or 86 miserable years. Remember, this was like the Egyptians were Nazis. And they, they, and they were not in power for 15 years. They were in power for 86 years over the Jewish people. But this repeated itself time and again. Later they went to Israel and the first temple, the Babylonians, then they dealt with the Persians and then they dealt with the Greeks and then they dealt with the Romans, the Ottomans, 
Inquis crusaders, inquisition, the pogroms, and finally, of course, the Holocaust. Well, it's not a one-time anomaly. And the answer always remains the same. You all captured it very well in your own words. I'm just putting it into some type of historical Jewish context. Story of all recovery of every individual microcosm reflects the macrocosm of Jewish recovery. More than recovery, I would say thriving and flourishing. I'll just use a short example. So, you know, just speaks to me. Imagine you're watching a movie, you're watching a film. I mean, a beautiful film has a lot of different interesting uh, twists and turns. And suddenly you recognize one section of the film is your story. You know, many times you watch a movie and it looks like my story. And you say, hey, that's me. And not only that, you can even you know, get all excited and resonate. Not only that, you can even predict the next uh, frame or two. And you share it with everyone. Hey, that's my story. Then suddenly the film continues on. And there's a new twist. The plot is changing. Not exactly the way you figured out. Maybe a good dip, or maybe even a big disappointment or setback. And suddenly you say to yourself, one second, it's not my story. But if you're a little wise, you step back and say, one second, who determined your story? You control your narrative? You've written your narrative? You're one little frame. You have myopic vision of a little bit of what you know right here and now. You belong to the narrative. The narrative doesn't belong to you. And what is the narrative? God is the choreographer. God leads the footsteps of human beings. Each of us have our story. But as Kierkegaard said, you can only understand life backwards, but we have to live our lives frontwards. Retrospect, we learn many things in retrospect. However, we live in our moment. We're a little anthill. Like some will say, what does the horizon look like? If you're standing on the ground here right now in New York City, the horizon doesn't look like much. You suddenly climb up on a mountain, wow, a new horizon. So what we have right now is, I don't want to compare tragedies or disasters. People have died. People are very sick. And I want to say right here, uh, in the name of all of us and in honor of all of them, that God should bless them all with a rufur shleim of a immediate and complete recovery. And the rest of us should be protected in this during this epidemic, pandemic, whatever you call it. But what we're talking about is obviously the second half of it, which is our psychological, emotional, and spiritual lives, which are equally important. Because there, if you get demoralized there and you're broken there, then you have nothing to work with. And we all know that also is necessary for our immune systems to function. So that which is not in our control is not in our control. That's outside of us. Everything inside here is completely in our control. And those that have those inner resources, for whatever reason, obviously are able to ride through this a lot easier. But we meet many people, and maybe even some here are on this, on this call, that have not worked on their inner resource. So now's the time. The good news is you have a soul that's beating inside of you, whether you know it or not. If you suffered and you had to access it, then God bless you. But if you haven't, now's an opportunity to actually access who the real you is. Because your narrative is not in your control. It's in control how you're going to navigate. Like a good swimmer, when there's a stormy sea, a good swimmer does not fight the tide. A bad swimmer will fight and unfortunately can lose. A good swimmer, you know what? It's a storm. I'm going to float. I'll go with the tide. When the tide, when the storm goes abates, that's when I'll swim forward again. So as all of you have said, and I echo it, of course, this is what Hasidus calls the ayin be'emta. That means there's between every two paradigms, if there's going to be any real change, you need to go through some form of a void or a vacuum. 
a mother goes through the pain of birth pains, pregnancy in order to give birth to a beautiful child, a seed deteriorates before it blossoms into a beautiful plant. We all go through the awkwardness of adolescence. You have to melt a piece of gold to shape it into a beautiful ornament. And creativity is a child of frustration. The list goes on. You show me excellence. You show any type of new newness, any new world. It always was preceded by some type of transition that wasn't easy. Because as long as it's an extent, as an, an extension of the past, and all you have is the past. Because I don't know who coined this line, but I like it. I always use it. If you thought what you thought, and you said, if you think what you thought, and you say what you said, and you do what you did, what do you think you're going to have? It's a math- mathematical certainty. You'll have what you had. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. So in Hasidic thought, the concept is considered to be that if you want paradigm shift, something, you have to shed some layer of skin. Now, we always pray and hope that it should be peaceful in a loving way, in a kind way. And I remember the Rebbe many times crying to God and saying, why does it have to be with even a drop of pain? We have enough pain. So I'm not in any way coming to justify or in any way explain this. But once it's done, God wants us right now quarantined in our homes, wants us to go through this. There's no question, there's no question that it's a paradigm shift. It's in our control completely to do that. I believe, like a group like this and others who've been there, who've been through the fire and have come out stronger, as the Jewish people should rise to the occasion. The Jews now, and I'm not saying this to pull rank, should be the leaders. They should get up and say, we've been here. We've went through epidemics and plagues, literally plagues, the 10 plagues. We were quarantined. Anything that you want happened to a nation happened to us individually and collectively. And we're here because we always knew it's not about us. There's a greater narrative. The word surrender, the word vulnerable, these are like words that are anathema to the modern world. What do you mean surrender, vulnerability? Yeah, you know what? Right now we're vulnerable, extremely vulnerable, because this is reality. But vulnerability is actually strength. You celebrate vulnerability, you celebrate love. Surrender is not surrender. The enemy surrenders in time of war, and that's considered weakness or loss. Surrender means you're surrendering to a reality that's greater than you are. And the way Judaism teaches us, then you become greater as well. And I want to share the Moses Montefiore, famous great benefactor and philanthropist, tremendous blood that he shared with Queen Victoria. She asked him once, he was Montefiore, was the builder of, muse- of uh, hospitals, half of Jerusalem he rebuilt. He was the one responsible for all the cats in Jerusalem because it was filled with rats. So now they say the cats became the rats. So, um, but on a good note, she asked him once, Queen Victoria asked Montefiore, Moses, Sir Moses, how much is your net value? How much are you worth? And he said, I, got, I have to come back to you. He made his calculations, come back to the queen. He gave her some number. He said, Sir Moses, you mock me. I personally know that you have holdings that are 100 times of what you just mentioned the number. He says, no, your majesty, I told you the truth. The money you're talking about is what I right now have in my hand, in my bank account. But they can be confiscated by you. I can lose it in a bad investment. It can be an epidemic. It could be a war. There's so many ways I could lose that money. It's not mine. I gave you the number of the money I gave away to Tzedakah, to charity. The institutions I built, people I helped. That nobody could ever take. Because that is not permanent. Whatever it did is a permanent change in this world. In other words, giving is what you control, not what you take. 
And at a time like this, which thank God we do see a rise of such humanitarianism. You see people coming out on the balconies dancing. Wedding, I saw a wedding, my niece's wedding just the last week here. You know, it couldn't be a wedding the regular way. So people from the balconies and the windows and my mother couldn't come to the wedding. Grandmother of the, of the Kala had to stand on her porch. But I saw such an exuberance. Of course, we'd rather have it in the so-called normal way. But as Rabbi Shea said before, no, we don't want normal again. Because that normal is a false normal, superficial. It's not real. We want a new normal that will be without illness and without pain and without death, obviously, but an awareness. And this is it. When we, in history, 8 billion people cannot ignore this. I mean, I, I'm still, we're still all shocked by it. There's not one person on earth that's not impacted by this. Not one institution. Everything. Every sector of society, you name it, has been impacted. Now, we want it to be only a positive impact. But there's no question. I mean, I speak now as a proud Jew. That 3,800 years of history, here we are. This is a paradigm shift. And if we really rise to the occasion, and I have no doubt we will, and we should definitely do whatever we can. And I second, of course, everything that was said here, being of service, the time to demonstrate deeper love, deeper courage, to show that nothing in this world can in any way weaken our soul. Yes, they tell us to socially distance, so we'll soulfully connect and unite more than ever. More than ever, not just... And we have to make a noise that is louder than the coronavirus eh, that will ripple through the world and say, here's our opportunity to create a global revolution of goodness and kindness in our homes. Everything begins locally in your home. Everything is in your own home and extending it to community and extending it to the whole world. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, even though, again, we didn't ask for it. We don't want it this way. But now that it's here, it would be sad actually be a disgrace if we didn't use it for that um poss- for, for that revolution that this should bring and i think the world is ready you don't see i mean even though i'm sure there's some people behaving selfishly but you don't see looting in the streets you don't see dog eats dog survival of the fittest on the contrary you see a certain gentleness and kindness coming out of people someone just told me the other day i can't wait to get back to my office just to say hello to the elevator man that i used to always just say good morning to him so I joined um, all of you, and I, uh, again, this is a unique time, extraordinary, vulnerable time, but the time that we can show that we're literally invulnerable when we connect, as Rabbi Rab, Rab Kaplan said, we connect to that which is above that helps us be able to uh, not fall below. So thank you for having me, and um, again, an honor, great honor to share a few words. Thank you so much, Harry Jacobson. So uh, for those who saw the invitation of this um, event, there were six people on the panel. And, uh, one of them was Rabbi Benjamin Bressinger. Unfortunately, like uh, Rabbi Mayer sa- said, um, moments before this happened, he was called to uh, his father. His father is sick in the hospital. And uh, his voice sounded concerned when he said the message. I'll say that. So. If this uh, gathering has any merit whatsoever, it should be in the merit that uh, Abba Halevi Benita has her for Shlema. Amen. Amongst the uh, many others which need it. So he actually did a recording, which we'll get to a little bit later, but there are some questions coming in from the panelists. Are you able to see the questions, the Q&A section? Yes, seven questions. Yeah. So I'm thinking the best format to uh, 
to do this. There were a couple addressed at Reb uh, Shays directly. So, which one somewhat of a challenge, which is always interesting, what challenging one of the things uh, you said. I sat on a, a panel in LA a few months ago with Reb Shays and someone in the audience <laughs> went after him pretty hard over something he said, which was uh, fascinating to, to witness. This one was more gentle, but for those who can't see the questions, uh, Reb Shays asked, said that shluchay mitzvah ain't in a zikin, right? Someone who's doing a good deed isn't hurt, and you mentioned, but in fact, we see a lot of people suffering while they're doing good things. And I'm pretty certain the questioner is not talking about people going to Minyan and getting hurt, because I think at this point we understand that the, God's will is not that we go to Minyan. Right? There's a new God's will in town, but there's a new will. I think they're talking about even, uh, I, I saw in Italy, for example, three or 4,000 work, medical workers um, contracted the virus. Right? The original doctor in China who announced to the world that this may be a, a, a pandemic, 30-something-year-old guy, he died from it. So that thought that you shared, there's obviously a question about it. Let me unmute you before you uh, are accused of speaking to yourself. Hi there. Okay. <laughs> the, by the way, interestingly enough, for those who um, are familiar with the Talmudic source of this uh, principle, that an emissary for a mitzvah will not come to harm. It's actually a discussion in the Gemara and Pesachim, um, where it's talking about searching for chametz. So it's uh, pertinent to the time we're in. It, it says over there about um, searching. Let's say you, you own uh, you you own like an apartment or something, and next door there's a, a non-Jew who doesn't know about searching for chametz, and you're searching the walls. It says you're going to creep out your neighbor, <laughs> and you're going to because he doesn't know you're searching for comets, and you're going to you know uh, cause a cause a fight, cause a problem over there. So, anyways, yeah. Even in the original source, it says that uh, this principle means that it protects one from an unusual occurrence, you know, a freak accident, something that would not be uh, within within the norm, <clears throat> but something that is generally presumed to be dangerous behavior, like uh, provoking your neighbor uh, in a way that you pretty much know what the response is going to be. It's, uh, you know, it's not a blank check. So for instance, not for instance, <clears throat> first and foremost, let's state, um, First of all, the Rabbanim the the said, don't even go to the minion. So you're not even doing a mitzvah by going. But even if somehow you could rationalize that it were a mitzvah, no, because the, the danger is, it's presumed that it's just, it's dangerous out there. So don't go, you're not protected. So that, that's first of all. It means you're protected from any unusual or out of the ordinary danger. Um, that's, that's the simple answer. Sorry, my... Uh, isn't that the most annoying answer, uh, which, which we call it, the annoying noise in the world that, what do you call it, that uh, WhatsApp uh, thing that comes up? Okay. So that, that, that's a simple answer. And uh, yeah. Afterwards, I'll show you to turn it off. But uh, yeah, I just, no, I just turned it off. Uh, <clears throat> but now let me give you a little bit of a deeper answer. What does it mean that uh, an emissary from Mitzvah will not come to harm? It's talking about spiritual harm. And that's what I was referring to originally. 
that while you're taking care of others, that's the biggest insurance policy you can take out on yourself. So um, if you're doing good, that is when uh, you are most protected from negative influences taking over in your own life. So it's interesting, a lot of times when people think about spiritual growth, uh, they think about all types of self-improvement, and it's kind of counterintuitive, but you know, self-improvement in a, in a subtle way is still preoccupation with self. Sometimes the best self-improvement is to forget about self, um, to think about the other. And uh, you know, the greatest, the greatest uh, example of the emissary of a mitzvah will come to no harm is the idea that while you're helping others, you are most, uh, most protected spiritually. Beautiful. I think there are, uh, I've heard that there are two types of questions and answers. Like you have a question where the question is asked and when the answer is answered, the question and answers still remain, right? Why were you late to work? I was late because I had a doctor's appointment. So the question is relevant and the answer is relevant. And then you have a question and answer where the answer makes a question irrelevant. Why were you late to work? I wasn't late. I was here in the back room, right? So the question no longer stands. So I think the answer over there has uh, <laughs> reduced the need for the question because the understanding, the way I always understood it was on a physical way, but to put in a spiritual concept, um, obviously is, is very different. And I think that it's certainly something that we come to realize in, in recovery because there are a lot of risks in recovery, right? There are obvious risks. You're associating with people who are not professionals, right? You can get hurt but there's a, a certain protection that seems to just happen in the rooms, right? You come to a, a group of people, there's no facilitator, there's no coordinator, there's no, there's no one watching the factory, right? And somehow these are some of the most well-run things you've ever seen. And I'm telling you, when the same group goes to dinner, it's a disaster. But you have, <laughs> but you have the group sit in a meeting and something just, something magical happens. Now, this is a, a really interesting question. Also wants to raise their hand in this one, but in step two, right, step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So someone says, okay, so now I'm opening myself up to a new higher power. I risk losing the, the, the way, I risk losing the understanding of the God of our fathers that I grew up with. So how do I risk, how do I open myself up to a new one without risking letting go of, uh, of the past one? So I don't know if someone, maybe Shnaini, you want to you take this one. Did you hear the question? Yeah, I, I heard the question, but I know uh, since we were talking about Rabbi Shesa's book, and by the way, I see in the comments that people are asking for some material on Jewish spirituality and how it works with recovery. So again, I know that Ellie has mentioned it a number of times, but certainly uh, the God of my understanding, there's there's Kuba through, through recovery from uh, Rabbi Tversky. There are some other, I know Menachem. Uh, Stepping out of the abyss. Stepping Out of the Abyss is an absolutely wonderful book, but there's tremendous, tremendous uh, literature that's available. I'm sure there's a lot online. But I I've know been rereading Towards a Meaningful Life, and it jives as well. It jives as well. So I know that, uh, I know that Ellie uh, invited me in, but if, if I could, I would like to defer to Rabbi Chase, because he has a very, very, very powerful chapter in the book that talks exactly about this idea, as we say, uh, we say it in our Davos, Every morning, it comes from Shira Sayam, from the wonderful song that we sang when we left Mitzrayim. 
and uh, in some of the earlier verses, So we talk about developing a personal relationship, a God of my understanding, but we're also talking about that is important also as part of that process to have the God of our Father. So if Rabbi Shase doesn't mind, um, if we could, if we could uh, unmute his microphone, because what he shares there in the book is incredible. Let's make sure that uh, everyone can hear it. Which part of the book are you talking about? <laughs> I think he remembers it better than you did. Some people know the book better than I do, by the way. <laughs> Which part of it? It's, it's, well, why don't you say it yourself? I'm, I'm sure you say it better than me. Sure, sure, sure. Again, again. Without, without Without the sophistication, you know, sometimes we have to take a few steps back to rediscover something on our own terms. A lot of the questions that I see here, a lot of the comments that I see, um, many of us were first introduced to the L.E.K. Ovi, the God of our fathers, in a certain way. And Eli made mention of that earlier on the God that uh, he was introduced to in yeshiva or maybe in, in the community in which he was raised, and at some point uh, rejecting that or having some very, very strong feelings uh, towards that God, but, but realizing that sometimes you have to rediscover it. Because, of course, in, in recovery, that is the principle. You cannot recover without identifying a higher power and surrendering to that higher power. So that's just my, uh, that's my little bit on it. And maybe you come back around to it through, through rediscovering your God, uh, God of your understanding. Uh, eventually you come to appreciate the Elike Ovi, the God that you inherited from your parents. Can I weigh in here, Eli? Go ahead. I want to share a story that actually happened. It was exactly like this. You know, people coming from very Haredish community. Um, we're talking about as extreme as it gets, where they could not speak English, absolutely had no knowledge of a secular world in any way. And they were told this is absolute truth, Judaism they grew up and obviously they were deeply hurt in the process, a lot of abuse, a lot of dysfunctionality, a lot of anger, violence. And this particular person, which unfortunately is not one case, but this is one I just, just comes to mind, came to see me a few years ago and you would, you would look at the person you never knew. I could see from the accent that Yiddish was his first language. But you would never know. Literally, every orifice on his body had some, uh, some uh, ring or some other, um, uh, some other puncture. And uh, he was so far away from anything that he grew up with. And I asked him, you know, it was a very nice conversation because he, I guess he found me online. So he was, felt I was warm. I wouldn't be judgmental. And, he and I said, so how's your life? He says, it's miserable. I don't have that. I don't have this. I have nothing. And um, he says, but I can never go back to that world. I said, any good memory? Anything that comes to you? He says, not one good memory. Yom Kippur was the worst. So I don't even think about that. And um, I could see the cry in his heart and soul was so deep. He was such a truthful person in a way. You know, I looked at him, and I know this may sound strange, not to you, but to many. I saw him more godly than many, many, many religious people I know because he was sincere, he was honest, he was raw, 
And um, and he said, and he like almost was crying. He says, I wish, I wish I could have back some of the childhood that I had that was nice, but it became so toxic. Um, and you, you never want to say these words, but sometimes you have to lose God to find God, as Shneini just said. Or I'll, I'll use an expression from Levi Yitzchak that I told him, and it actually comforted him. I said, he once told a self-proclaimed atheist, Rabbi Yitzchak the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. This myth, this uh, brainwashed myth, the God that was told to us by our parents, our educators, or our schools, is not necessarily God. So let's not even feel guilty if we lose it. Because you may be losing something that was never real in the first place. It just as impressionable children who are defenseless and pure and innocent, in a sense, someone just planted an image in your mind, that's completely false. So that guilt that so many people have, you have to come to realize, one second, that's not God at all. As a matter of fact, that can be complete idolatry. I don't care where it came from. And we have to be able to feel free to say that. And look, obviously, if you can maneuver and adjust the God that you grew up with and, and figure out how to make it a healthier form of a godly experience, great. But many often you cannot. And simply, simple as that, you need to drop a complete delusion of God and find a completely new reality of God. I'll say even a stronger statement, Rabbi Chase mentioned on Friday was the 100th yard site of the Rebbe Rashab. He once said something, I remember when my Mashpia, Rabbi El, told this to me, he told me, don't ever share it. I think in this world we can share it. He said the following words. He said that atheists are one step closer in some way to God and believers. Because when you say God exists, I say, God exists. I believe God exists. I know God exists. What do you mean by exists? Like your uh, table and your chair and like your arms and legs and like your family and like the trees and that what you mean by exists? That's not how God exists. When they say God does not exist, they have one step truth because they mean they're saying basically it does not exist the way we understand existence. What is called in the Hasid is built to Metzias Nimsa, non existential existence. We can't even say God exists. We say God does not not exist because you can't say it's not there. Now, again, this is a deep concept. I believe that people who have lost God, or I didn't want to say lost God, who have lost the fairy tale God and the illusion of God that was given to them are actually getting much closer to truth and to God than they may even know. If I can answer from um, my experience is I didn't, like I didn't totally understand the question. He said, how do we risk losing it? What's the risk? It was useless for me. It wasn't doing its job. If it was, I wouldn't be in the place I was. So I don't see the risk. Yeah, but if it's your comfort zone, if you grew up with it, Ellie, your whole life, you feel 100%. like it's your... But I'm saying at that point, the questioner is coming from a standpoint recognizing that it's not working and wanting to open themselves up to a search. It's obviously not, it's obviously not working. Um, Reb Meir and Menachem, one of the questions I think would be uh, really appropriate to you guys. So, you know, I guess the ones whose name starts with letter M will go first. But uh, the... The, the, the questioner asked like this. They said there were a certain point in their recovery where they had the willingness. They had the gift of desperation. And then they got to a certain sense of normalcy, right? I think which is a very interesting question in the, 
in the context also of coronavirus, right? There's certain realizations that one can come to, and then there's a certain desperation, and then slowly, five or ten years later, it can slip a little bit and say, how did they re-attain that gift of desperation that they once had? They want it, but they don't have it now. How can they get it? You're gonna have to choose one of us because neither of us are gonna talk first. You just did. Go ahead. Did. Okay, so Mayor New. <laughs> um, sorry, Bay. The arrogance seeps in. Um, so uh, it's a great question. Actually, relates back to the other question, not to to, to fight my impulse to to answer that. But um, I think uh, I think the truth is you need to let go of whatever gift of desperation you were running on the last time because it wasn't enough to keep you engaged. And it's a wonderful opportunity, the, whatever humility this coronavirus situation is bringing to your life, makes it a wonderful opportunity to re-engage recovery from different footing. You know, and, um, you know, some of the great literature and recoveries in the 12 and 12, the essays that Bill Wilson wrote, and in the step, in the sixth step, he talks about the separation between the boys and the men. And I think it goes to the heart of what that part of the steps is about, which is, not operating from that place of what's wrong with me and starting to operate with the place from a place of what's right with my life and trying to practice spiritual principles and trying to live my life free of the of the shackles of defect. And um, and he talks there in the 12 and 12 about the separation between the boys and the men, between the adults and the children. You know, our child self wants to react to what's wrong wants to run away from what's not working. And our adult self says, no, let's, let's, let's think in a forward manner. Let's engage even though we don't feel like it. Let's take steps towards what we want to do. So, you know, even in the, in the relationship with God part, you know, um, it requires a measure of faith to engage my relationship with God, because what happens if I find out that what I believed the whole time wasn't true? And it's it's perfectly legitimate to be nervous that the process of recovery, your process of spiritual seeking might lead you to a path that might take you outside of the bounds of what you believe and your conviction to be true. That's a perfectly legitimate um, fear. But some of what Ellie said is, what alternative do you have? So stay sick. What alternative do you have? The other interesting thing there is that the the programs of recovery don't ask you to, to believe anything new. They only ask you to get honest about what you actually believe and make a beginning from there. So it's not so much about finding out that Judaism is not true, but finding out that maybe you don't really believe as much as you thought you did. And that will give you the opportunity to engage a relationship with God from different footing. Um, instead of running away or wanting to be driven by impulse, to be driven by conviction and by spiritual principle, um, and, and in that, in that regard, it's step three, um, it's making a decision, you know, the three frogs on a log analogy that's come and used in recovery, you know, you gotta make the decision and then jump off the log, take some action. So, um, that's how I would answer that question. Mayor, let me make sure you're unmuted. So, yeah. That thought that the way I, I want to um, retain the integrity of the question, when he said, I'm, I am not being active in recovery, but I know I need it. That was the, the way uh, it was worded. So 10 years ago, you had desperation. Even five years ago, you had a relapse. 
and not being active in recovery, despite the fact that he knows he needs it. Yeah. So to me, this is my personal opinion regarding desperation. Desperation is a good beginning. But desperation doesn't last. If you're relying on desperation for recovery, then the second the desperation leaves, then your recovery can also leave. Desperation is a good gift to start. Once you start, you need to maintain consistency every day, do the same thing every day, because eventually desperation will leave. There's no way to maintain desperation. We get used to living. So in my opinion, when we have desperation, we use it to start practicing every single day, the idea of consistency. Every single day, do the same thing over and over and over again, and you build up a repertoire and to a toolbox to maintain recovery. I'm not a long talker. I answer things in about 20 seconds. But that's, that's what the way I see it. I hope that people appreciate my 20 second answers. I do. <laughs> Chase, I felt like, I felt through the camera like you were itching to say something to that. So maybe not, but in terms of some response about that, see the person's not saying that they're in recovery and they're practicing and everything else. They're saying that they're not anymore but they know they need it okay how do they get that back i guess the question is how do they get that back without hitting the same bottom i think that's the there is a little desperation in the question when i hear it. <laughs> <laughs> right you nailed it ali it's like uh, uh it's just not desperate enough not just gotta just push it over the edge. Look, we all know the bottom is a relative thing. You know, they say, when do you hit bottom? When you quit digging. So, uh, you know, I never, ever, ever saw that there was one objective, objective criterion for bottom. You know, for, for some people, you know, the first time they lose a job, the first time they lose a marriage, the first time they face public uh, humiliation. Then others, they can do that 10, 20 times, and it's, it's not bottoms. Bottom is a relative term. Bottom means that when we realize that uh, we cannot run a successful life based on human power. So what I would say to that is that if you think enough well, hold on. I don't want to be disingenuous. To think, you have to have what to think about. If you first fill your head with the right messages by studying Chassidus first and foremost, and then having the right kinds of people to discuss that with, and you're filling your head with ideas of really Hashem's absolute control, Hashem's providence, the nature of creation, how reality itself is constantly uh, a dialogue with Hashem speaking to us, all these ideas. And then you'll think about that sufficiently. I promise you, you don't have to have anything going wrong in your life to reach the conclusion that we are absolutely powerless and totally dependent on God. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that circumstances have to bring us to that recognition. But In truth, circumstances don't have to bring us to that. If we'll just stop and think about the nature of reality, um, 
stop in some quiet time. Maybe while we're stuck at home, maybe we have more quiet time. Maybe we have less quiet time. I don't know if you need to take a walk around the block, take a walk around the block. But if you'll just stop and think what we call to be misbeinen, to meditate, I promise you that the reality becomes very clear that we're absolutely dependent on Hashem for everything. And um, we don't need a crisis. We don't need desperation uh, to lead us to that conclusion. So like, like Mayer was just saying, you know, you can't live your life based on desperation. But the thing is, you don't need to because it's, let me clarify. Sometimes we think the desperation is what brought us to finally meeting God. It wasn't the desperation. Desperation was a haksha mitzvah. Hekshe mitzvah means something that primes the pump, something that sets the scene. It like prepares the conditions to be ripe for something to happen. The desperation, like I mentioned earlier, the Abi Ibn quote, that, that, that nations are like people, they, they tend to think rationally when they've exhausted all other possibilities. The desperation just puts you in a situation where finally you can accept the truth. So it wasn't the desperation that got you in touch with God, it was accepting the truth that got you in touch with God. So if you could do it without the desperation, why not? And the answer is, of course you can. That's what raising the bottom means. Raising the bottom means doing it without the desperation. Ongoing recovery means doing it when you wake up in the morning, and that I hereby, not just I think, but I acknowledge that word, which doesn't just mean gratitude. It means I acknowledge, I, I admit you know, the first thing in the morning, you start with admission. Admission of what? I didn't put myself here. You put me here. You're in control, not me. And nothing, no crisis happened. I just woke up. There's no crisis yet, right? So what I'm saying is just because in our experience we associate crisis with being open to the truth of God doesn't mean that there has to actually be the, the coupling of those two. We can do it. I, I, I'll put it one more way, and I think um, I think it's Reb Simon is itching. Like Ali, you accused me of itching, but I, I wasn't itching. I think Reb Simon is itching. He has. I, some, I see no, it, but before no, no, no. before I do, I'm going to load another question. So I'm I'm, I'm going to just close by saying this. One of the things that Mashiach is going to do is help the tzaddikim to do teshuva. Hold on. Why does a tzaddik, a perfectly righteous person, have to repent? He didn't do any sins. Oh, you thought that you need to be in such a crisis where you're actually doing sins that in order to, to seek out getting closer to God? Look, we don't have to have any problems. We don't have to have any crisis. We don't have to have any desperation. If you'll just sit and look at the truth, we'll realize that we need God and uh, we can do it. Ultimately, the goal is, and this is what Mashiach will innovate, that we can search out God while everything is beautiful, everything is secure, everything is stable, everything's wonderful, there's world peace, everyone's healthy, every, the world is perfected, and we're seeking out God. Anyways, that, that's, that's my two cents. Eli, I just wanted to share one quick thing as an extension to what Rabbi... Just one said. thought before, because uh, Menachem P. has to go. I did call for 12 to 2. I'm happy to stay a little bit longer and get to some of the questions, but Menachem Pesnansky has a, a hard stop. So I just wanted to thank him for uh, joining, participating, and... Uh, giving his thoughts. And again, the book that he uh, wrote is Stepping Out of the Abyss, A Jewish Guide to Recovery, I believe it is, A Jewish Guide to the 12 Steps.
So thanks so much, Menachem. Appreciate all the work Thank you do you. in the living room and everything else and the time today. Thanks so much, Ali, for the opportunity and Rabban, and I'm sorry I have to leave. All the best. Thanks so much. Your snare, to get back to that. Yeah, you know, some people imagine that um, meetings are like a bunch of desperate, you know, addicts who meet and uh, in their desperation, they're clinging to each other. But that's really not what recovery is. And, and Rabbi Shays was talking about this. Perhaps it is desperation and the bottom that brings us to the room. But, but what we find is that people who have some recovery under their belt, uh, they're coming back again and again, not because they are desperate and not because they're terrified if somehow they miss you know, one meeting, they're in trouble. They're going back because of what they found there. It's, it's the living waters. It's the spiritual principles. It's the fellowship. It's, it's a power and an energy and a miracle. And that's what we're coming back for. And I think that this connects to, I'm looking at a number of the comments that perhaps uh, for many of us, um, you know, the Yiddishkeit, the Judaism that we absorbed in our youth, the Elikei Ovi, you know, the God of our fathers and mothers that we absorbed, we ended up turning on it or rejecting it and so on. Um, because often for many of us, it was like the desperation we're talking about. So we davened, you know, we found ourselves davening because we were afraid what would happen to us if we didn't daven. Or, or we would daven on the days that we were really, really desperate. And so out of our desperation, we turned to the Siddur. But instead of appreciating that the, the Zekeli, the God that we turn to every day in prayer, is we can't wait to pray every day. We can't wait to connect with Hashem every day. We can't get enough of sharing our gratitude and saying thank you and just spending some time in intimate conversation with, with the God of our understanding, with our higher power. It's something that we, it gives us life. That's really what recovery is about. Recovery is not about, you know, abstinence. Uh, recovery, again, is not about desperation. It's, it's, we go back to it again and again because it's, it's an endless reservoir of life. It's an endless reservoir of life. And talking about it in the context of Judaism, that's what we're trying to reclaim. Uh, not, be, not some kind of guilt or shame that pushes us to the learning or the davening or, or whatever mitzvah is on the table now, but, but a love, a love and a passion. Because this is what satisfies, as Rabbi Shays so eloquently puts in his book, that addiction is a spiritual disease. And therefore, the only solution for this disease is a spiritual solution. And we are fortunate enough, uh, I'm sure there, there are many people who are here, but especially for those who are Jewish, and especially for those who are Hasidim, and especially for those who are Chabad Hasidim, we, we have it. We have such an incredible resource because Hasidus speaks to us on this level. Uh, we have to read between the lines. But, uh, but the Alter Rebbe and Tanya, or any Hasidus that you're learning, really uh, has so much of, of these deep, 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 satisfying and sustaining spiritual principles. So I, I don't know, again, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a trained professional here and I'm not an expert in, in any way, but only because of what I have heard, what people have shared in those rooms, they're not coming because they're desperate. They're coming because they, uh, they, they, they have found something that's so incredible. They, they want more and more and more and more of it. And that should be the same for us. Uh, we open the sitter again because we just, 
We can't get enough of it. We want more and more and more of it. Can I weigh in? Yes, I also want within your answer to embed, I think it's connected, but there are a couple of questions along the same theme about a punishing God and the people who one guy mentions, he didn't grow up Orthodox, but he's worked with a number of people who are Orthodox and a lot of shame around addiction, specifically he's talking about pornography addiction, and just how this whole idea of a punishing God and the separation of male and female and up until marriage, right? We, we have no interest in them until marriage, and then from there we're making babies, right? That whole, um, those, it, those contradictions. Just a how few one little is, items, that's all. <laughs> To, to me, there's like a central question there. That's there's so much of it seems to work against us. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to firstly share something that I think uh, very, very profound insight from the Rebbe. I remember when the Rebbe said it. I like I uh, at the time, it was uh, that is very relevant to this discussion. Um, he he he. The Zohar says it's also Pesach related that the Jews were oppressed, so it says, with bricks and mortar, which means that their bondage, their hard labor, their uh, slave labor, consisted of bricks and mortar, building bricks and mortar and mortar. You see that. The Zohar, in a bizarre way, interprets the word that chomer means which is a methodology of studying Torah, and levenim is another methodology called libun hilchaseh, Finding clarity, like as if it's just attaching two words that have absolutely no relationship. We're talking here about slave labor, bricks and mortar, and the Zohar suddenly connects it to uh, two methods of studying Torah. And the Rebbe asked the question, "What you know? The, everything has to have deeper meaning. It's not like a cute connection. You just find a word and say, okay, here's a play on the word." And the Rebbe's answer was the following: He says, "Everybody in life needs to be desperate." Everybody needs to exert themselves. You need to have something that pressures you to work hard. The question that you, that the choice you have in life, will it be through slave labor or will it be through exertion in studying Torah and seeking out spirituality and growth? Everybody needs to have that push. And God forbid, if you don't, Achieve it in the healthy way. Sometimes it comes to you in the unhealthy way. I think think this is a tremendous, tremendous concept, which simply means this: if you commit in your life to something, to a cause that's greater than you are, and you feel the pressure, you're accountable. I mean, at the end of the day, the healthiest form of the word. Now, I'll use a Chabad example. You're a shliach of the Rebbe. You're an emissary. You're an ambassador of light, and this is a 24/7 job. You can't go, you can't leave this job. You're pressured to do it. That type of healthy pressure, in a way, preempts the need to have in life pressures that may not be that healthy. Because when you have the void and you're not doing anything, then what happens when a person's bored? What happens to all their passion and, and, and creativity and energy? We all know the most creative people are the most addictive people because they are desperate and they're looking for anything that will just fill the void. So I want to just say, especially in our time today, anything you do that is of service, it's not about you. It's not about your comfort and your interests. You are in some way helping and you do it in a desperate yeah, Be a desperate volunteer. I mean desperate in a good way. Go and make sure there's no, a day doesn't pass, as Rabbi Shea said and some of the others, 
a day doesn't pass, an hour doesn't pass that you don't call someone. You don't help them. You feel you must do it. It's not just optional when you're in the mood. Precisely when you're not in the mood, that's when you do it. Those healthy forms of pressure are the best ways to create so-called a, uh, a desperate search for the greatest heights. When you talk about Moshe Rabbeinu, these people were desperate. They were desperate, however, to connect to God. It wasn't a desperation for survival or, uh, or because they were about to die. It was a desperation because they were not satisfied with yesterday's accomplishments. I think that element is missing very strongly in a lot of Judaism, which has become very mechanical. So even though you say mechanical, robotic Judaism, who cares? But no, it's the, it's the breeding ground for all problems. Because if it's mechanical and it's robotic, it ends up becoming something that's a comfort zone that does not allow for growth. And if there's no growth, we all know. Either you're growing, you're busy being born, or you're busy dying. And uh, I think just, I, mean, I let the others maybe weigh in on the other parts of the question that you just introduced. I'll just say one short additional point. To me, that's all what... The real shift is the Judaism we grow up with is very often a set of laws and dogma and rituals and do's and don'ts and reward and punishment and a lot of words like anger and guilt and punitiveness and punishment. Those are all toxic words. They're all toxic, every one of them. Everyone has to be discarded. You go with a whole different approach. God created existence out of love. Love chesed drives existence. Every detail in existence is a loving experience between God and a people who he wants to have a loving relationship with. In a loving relationship, there's a thing called accountability. And that's why you have to live up to certain standards. That whole concept of sin, of punishment, of making God angry and he'll kill you or whatever it is, or the community will kill you, is man-made delusional that I would say is a complete distorted. That's why I never liked the word religion. Torah and mitzvahs, mitzvahs was meant to be, it's called connections. It's helping you align yourself to be the best you can be. You know, the word Avera means displacement, dissonance. It misaligns you or disaligns you from who you should be. That's simple, as simple as that. And therefore the laws, whether it's the laws about premarital relationships, or you mentioned other things, we sometimes probably have to revisit the whole Torah and mitzvahs and say, one second, how is this mitzvah a connection between me and my soul between me and God, how does it actualize the potential that my soul was sent to this world to fulfill a mission that's greater than I am? If we can rephrase it all and revisit and re, uh, realign, our, re, redefine our entire, meet, the entire definitions of Torah and mitzvahs and God, that I think is the key. And I think a lot of the questions that I'm seeing and I've heard all the time are based on that false perception. It's not about oh, I'm going to explain to you why God's punishing you. No, maybe we got to revisit the whole idea that you have in the first place. Maybe it's not the way you were taught. So one of the, one of the questions that were asked here, and I could have asked it myself, was how does this dovetail with like the rigid prescription of halacha? Right, where there's so many, like, you know, it's not just these big things like Shabbos. Like, okay, there's a concept of Shabbos, which we can get behind conceptually why it's beautiful and everything else, but some of these nitty gritty, like the real minutia and the details of Allah to get behind that once we move away from a punishing God and move away from a... Um, Do you want me to weigh in if someone else wants to? Yeah. yeah it's, okay, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll quickly answer it. 
I, it, it goes back to the same thing. When you go into, the, when you're in the military, you know, they kick your butt. They, you have to wake up four o'clock in the morning. They put 300 pounds on your back and they make you climb up a cliff that's wet. And you say, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? But that's the only way you're going to become a soldier. Hey, you ever see how, how athletes are tra trained? You ever see how ballet dancers, I know all this business is all out for now, but there was once a thing called athletics and sports and, 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 and uh, opera and so on and ballet. You ever see how they train? You ever see a, a concert pianist train? I find it much more rigid than all the laws of Pesach, even though laws of Pesach can be quite OCD as it is. My point is, the problem is, the Rebbe once said a beautiful analogy. He says, if someone gave you 100 pounds of stones to carry it across the street, and then it belongs to you. You'd say, what do I need 100 pounds of stones? But say they said to you 100 pounds of diamonds. They'll say, give me 200 pounds. Now, 100 pounds of diamonds don't weigh more less than 100 pounds of stones. What's the difference? Same exertion, but you see it's diamonds, the value. The word halacha means law, but it also comes from another word. It means halicha, movement, growth, a journey. Unfortunately, mitzvahs were taught purely only the body of the mitzvah without the soul of the mitzvah. We're all talking about soul. The body of the mitzvah is a lot of heavy weight. And most mitzvahs, frankly, if you start away, you say, what do I need to do that? You know, Torah regulates everything, how you cut your nails. Every crumb, Pesach, I mentioned, and so on. However, let's say it's musical notes that you don't know how to read the notes, and then someone sits down and starts playing, and it's magic, music. So, the, unfortunately, this is what this is what Chassidus teaches us. Unfortunately, most are not aware that the mitzvah, the technicality is the buttons you press. And it's the soul magic that emerges from it, the transcendence, the connection, the things we've been talking about, that most people have no clue. They have no idea. Come Shabbos, most people say, Shabbos, I day I do nothing. I can't wait till it's over. I always thought that Saturday Night Fever was a Jewish invention because Jews had to break out after Shabbos. You know, you do nothing. I do nothing on Shabbos. Ask a young man or woman, what do you do on Shabbos? Nothing. And it's the most opposite. Shabbos, you shut down your material life, experience the deepest life of all, your spiritual, your inner life. That's why today, even the quarantining, people are having problems. What am I supposed to do? There's no restaurant to go to. There's no party. There's no show. Because inner life is something many of us are not accustomed to. This needs, maybe this is a great opportunity now to recalibrate, I would say redefine all of Judaism. But as you said earlier, I don't know, you quoted, the, who did you quote? I think Proust. It's all going back to the original. We're not talking about a new age Judaism that suddenly becomes spiritual. It's the thing that held Jews together from the time when Judaism was born, body and soul. Ask one question, you do a mitzvah, ask what is the soul dimension of that mitzvah? You, you ask that question, you're already on a better journey. Don't just buy into it because people do it. But I'm feeling a kosher, you light a candle, what's the soul meaning behind it? And not just what's in it for me, what is the spiritual significance? What energy is released when I do that good deed or mitzvah? So I would um, beautiful. So it's shifting from almost everything we were taught. In and, a lot and of just, ways. just to add a little, little something, you raise know, the hard drive. Yeah, people, uh, you know, people who first come into recovery, we talked about being desperate, and so they're willing to do whatever it takes. And and here people are sharing, you know, what they did and what worked for them, and uh, what what a lot of recovering addicts 
struggle with in the first stages of recovery is is surrendering themselves to to whatever program so we're talking let's let's talk about a 12 step based program and it's like do i have to really do this step and then that step and then the next step so i have to come to believe and then i have to be ready uh you know whatever i'll 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 you know i'll i'll discard this one i won't necessarily it only works it only works if you work it and you have to work every single step and that's the way it works so the idea is is that you accept not i don't know how many people actually understand why it works they understand that it works <laughs> right so so in other words if we approach yiddishkeit if we approach yiddishkeit not that we understand how everything works but we understand the aside we understand the foundation and so uh, i can't explain to you why it has to be exactly in this way but i accept that doing it in exactly this way doing it in, is what works it's what works and eventually with time we develop more and more of an understanding as we always talk about first first it is the nasa it is the surrender it is the commitment to absolutely every aspect of the jewish program every halacha every nuance and halacha so on and so forth and and then eventually with time we come to appreciate the value maybe not in everything but the value in many many things and it it works the same in recovery everybody how does it work why does it work why does it have to be exactly in this order and and why do i have to you know work my first step i just want to skip over and do another one so so this is uh, this is the idea right i think that what what makes it difficult is completely letting go of those concepts of reward and punishment and you know prescriptive action and it's more of i remember when i one of my first meetings so i lived in hollywood and hollywood had two or three meetings a week and my sponsor, my sponsor tells me, I want you to go to a meeting every single day. How am I going to go to a meeting every single day? There's three meetings a week. He said, if you, there are phone meetings, there's meetings 45 minutes away, you'll find it. Do you want to go to a meeting every day? He said, for three months, I want you to give, go to a meeting every day. So I found a meeting like 45 minutes an hour away that I started going to. And the first meeting I was there, I shared that my sponsor told me I have to come. So, you know, I got to come to a meeting. So I found this place and kind of introduced myself to the new room. And the guy, a guy leans over to me and he says, you don't have to, you don't got to do anything. You get to do everything, right? Then it was like this, you know, simple, but just a, a very different attitude that, you know, the drive down, it's true. No, I didn't have to do it. It was a total choice I made that I wanted a different way of life. And there I was moving towards. But when we have the, the programming, it makes it tough. Reb Mayer, I know that uh, you're often needing to comfort people in your job because in recovery, not everything always works and sometimes there's uh you know what do they call it the um the relapse rate the, the amount of people you know the things happen and i'm sure you've comforted many people who've gone through terrible tra tragedies with their children and everything else one of the questions that came in is simply to do that to share some uh i know we've been in a space now of answering questions and a little bit of the intellectual perhaps someone who's often in the uh in there and the way, the way they worded it, some words of encouragement for people who are truly all alone right now. No. Hi. So you come to the person that's not the intellectual for those. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mayor is a major intellectual, if anybody really knows him. <laughs> let, let, me, let, let, let me just tell you a story that, 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 that happened with myself and Rabbi Shay's Tav. He actually brings it down in his book. But when that 
story happened, it was an epiphany for me. And I think it was for him. I don't want to talk for him, but he'll say after. I once brought him down to Chabad. Uh, I think it was 11 years ago to talk to the recovery community. We, have a, we had a small group at that time with about 60 people packed in a small room. In order to defray from the cost, because every Shea Stav charged a lot of money for his honorarium, so I decided, clearly his, his thing is mute because he's not even responding to what, oh, no, he's there, he's listening. <laughs> so in order to defray from the cost, I, I actually said, you know what? There's another rabbi that I work with. I said, why don't you talk to the normal community first? We'll, we'll, they'll, they'll chip in and uh, we'll, I'll be able to save money. So we agreed. Anyway, he comes down and he decided to prepare the same speech for both groups. And the speech was on Yashmai and something from nothing. Some deep intellectual concept. Anyway, so he goes into, he first started with the normies because they have to get entertained quickly and we could hang out in the small room after. So he goes in there and he says the speech. And not only did it not go well, he was heckled by old, an old lady. I can't say her name, God bless her. An old lady heckling him. You're boring us with your stupidity. With what's Dreistamira cup? Entertain us. What is this? Really, he walked out of the room after he was white. Imagine that face white. And there was no time between the, um, the, the, the white linen dinner to arch, you know, chicken quarter dinner that was happening in our room. And he came right in and he started the speech again. And he can tell you that that speech was the most amazing speech he ever gave. No, I don't know if it's the most amazing, I don't want to say that, but at least the most amazing speech that we ever heard. And every single person ate every single word up like it was, it was like life and death to them. That's when I realized, when he told me what happened in the other room, I realized that this community is the one in the yeah, You have to say, it was the exact same speech. I thought I said that, but... Exact same speech. Okay, I'm just adding. Yeah. So what's Pshat? I don't know what Pshat is. I don't know why. I'll leave it up to the smart people here, the thinkers, to say why. Chase, I'm very impressed that you, with the confidence, that you took exactly the same speech and said it again. The point was... The secret is I did it more than two times. And, and the point was, it was very receptive and it was an amazing speech, and people still remember that speech still today. I don't know why. Bottom line is, there's a certain spirituality, a certain neshama that the recovery community has that they're able to eat these deep thoughts, not eat it as an intellectual concept, but personalize it and apply it to their daily life. This is something special about the recovery community and this is why I, myself, I'm attracted to the recovery community. Because even when I speak, and I don't speak as well as all you guys, they're able, they listen and they, and, and they eat it like it's mamish, um, sustenance for life. I just want to tell everybody that's listening out there, I myself right now have dealt with three relapses of people that I wouldn't have thought that I would have relapsed. It's a perfect storm, ladies and gentlemen, for relapse. You're isolating, you're at home, you're anxious, you're scared. News is coming in. I, I'm scared to look at my phone. A whole Shabbos, I myself was petrified when, I, when, 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 when much of Shabbos comes. What's the information I'm going to have, Matzah Shavu? It's, it's, it's a tremendous, a tremendous amount of pressure. Not only that, anecdotally, 
there's also people that are saying that if you drink alcohol, it can help you from COVID because it'll burn out all the, any excuse you want today, any justification and rationalization to relapse is, it's, it's, it's In the ready. UK, they deemed alcohol stores, I saw this, essential businesses. So a lot is shut down, but if you serve alcohol, you're essential. The truth is it's not essential because alcoholics, if they stop drinking, there's withdrawals all over. Anyway, in Kanamak and Maharaj. Anyway, my point, now is not the time for that. My point is, do yourselves a favor. Continue to go to meetings. Continue to continue. Whatever program you had, continue to do it. And if you feel like you're having a hard time, call up your friends. Call up. We have a meeting every single night here at the JRC. If you, if, uh, we don't promote meetings. That's not what we do. But in, there's no way to get it out there. Go to meetings. If you feel like you want to drink, it's okay. Call your friends, call your sponsor. It's the perfect storm to drink right now or to use. So it's, it's a trying time for us to, and once we're strong, we can help the rest of the world with our, the tools that we have. That's all I wanted to say. We can get back to why God runs the world, why bad things happen to good people. We'll get back to that right now. Okay, just quickly, I wanted this like 30 second answers, but two people ask these questions. Um, so I want, just because they're like practical, so um, I think Chase, maybe if you can answer. Um, Could you then, put me on mute because I need a cough and I don't want to scare anyone. <laughs> so Chase or Simon, I mean, I, I, either one, they're both, uh, but to just quick to the point answers because they're practical questions. One person says they're married to someone, um, they've been wanting to convert. So the, the, the question came through on YouTube because there's questions coming in from there as well. So I've been looking for conversion for years, but I'm married and my husband doesn't want to be re remarried to me as a convert. I don't want to separate my child from his father. So a question about conversion when the other couple doesn't want, just a very simple, brief answer. Either Simon or Chase, both, either. Or. So let me, uh, Simon, it's on you. <coughs> First of all, um, all these type of questions, a question like this has no nuances. I would recommend that she call someone she trusts because immediately a few questions jump up, you know, because if this is going to become a serious source of conflict, um, you have to know what the consequences are either way. Um, and you have to know what her husband's position is on this matter. So I don't know if I'm adequate enough to give an, uh, a specific answer. I just think the most important thing is to talk to someone who she trusts um, and review the whole issue here. Uh, it would be best to have the husband and wife together on the phone, if possible, um, uh, because then you could hear perspectives on it. Uh, so what's no, Are you what, offering her to reach out to you? She wants to, but, I, but let her find someone she knows. She doesn't right. know me. Always best someone you trust. Okay. Because... I don't know what is her husband thinking. What, what is he? What is he suggesting? That just keep things as they are. Right. You should, you know, I just felt like it was a practical question. No, no, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm just feel that way. Maybe uh, Rabbi Shea says something. No. That. The other, the other question was, um, someone who's in recovery for addiction, sex addiction specifically, and their couple therapist was surprised to find out that because they're religious, they don't show any affection in front of their children, and the fear that the therapist brought up is that the children not seeing any physical affection could lead to physical touch being taboo, shamed, and ultimately an addiction for themselves. So what would you advise? 
for someone who the therapist is. I can tell you this before you go into the thing. I once overheard someone tell their parents, you're willing to fight in front of us, but you're not willing to kiss in front of us. I just think it's odd. <laughs> anyway, so. That's strong. Uh, That's strong. I won't say who and I won't say in front of whose parents. But the, in terms of that question, what does someone do with that? But I think the halacha is, uh, I don't know, whatever. But I guess that's where the question is coming from. So something practically. Did you catch a question? Unmute, Chase. Let, it, let him respond. So who, who's asking? Somebody who went to the therapist or the therapist himself or herself is asking? This it seems to be a male in recovery for sex addiction and a Lubavitcher. The therapist was surprised to find out that the parents don't show any physical affection in front of the children. Okay. And the therapist brought it up as a concern that it could lead to negative behaviors mm-hmm. with that for the children, okay. having a taboo or shame around physical affection, and ultimately um, perhaps repeating that addiction. addiction mm-hmm. Okay, I hear that. Um, maybe... <laughs> Before I respond to the specific question, I'll make a general comment, which is that um, it's not a therapist's job to morally guide us. Um, A therapist, and I'm speaking with generalizations right now. Obviously, there are exceptions. The therapist is not moral or immoral. They are uh, almost by design, you know, by virtue of clinical detachment, objectivity, amoral. That means, you know, moral means I try to do the right thing. Immoral means I don't care about the right thing. And amoral means morality is not a discussion here. Um, I mean, uh, so, okay. My father, Zogzunzain, is a, is a, is a, psychologist for many, many decades. And um, one of the jokes he told me growing up, he said, a guy walks into a bar and he asks for a shot of whiskey and the bartender puts the shot on the bar and the guy takes the glass. He looks at it and splashes it in the bartender's face. So the bartender uh, says, get out of here. Okay. The next day the guy comes back in the bar and the bartender recognizes him and says, Hey, get out of here. He says, no, 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 I'm going to behave. I'm going to behave. Okay, fine. What do you want? He says, give me a shot of whiskey. So puts the shot glass on the bar, pours the shot. The guy picks up the shot glass, takes a look at it, splashes it in the bartender's face. Bartender says, that's it, you're banned for life. Never come back. A year later, the guy steps foot into the bar. Bartender recognizes him. He says, you are banned for life. The guy says, hold on a second. You know how long it's been since I've been here? A year. And for that year, you know where I've been? I've been in therapy. The whole year I'm in therapy. Can I please come back in? Bartender says, fine, come back in. What do you want? The guy says, I want a shot of whiskey. So the bartender puts the shot glass on the bar, pours the shot, guy picks up the shot, splashes into the bartender's face. The bartender says, I thought you told me that you've been in therapy for a year. The guy says, I have been. Now when I do that, I don't feel guilty. What's, okay, and, and like, like I told you, my father, the, the psychologist, told me this joke. And they, like they say, every truth has a little bit of joke. So What's the idea here? A person has tension. A person has stress. Something's got to give, right? You have to make an adjustment. Um, It's not a therapist's job to know where that adjustment can and cannot be made. 
So one way of alleviating the stress is to teach the person not to feel guilty about splashing the whiskey in someone's face, right? Okay. It's an absurd example, but the point is that you have to have your own moral compass. You have to know what your values are. So for instance, if, uh, if you hired a tour guide, let's say you went to some city, let's say you were sightseeing and you hired a tour guide and you asked an expert tour guide to put together an itinerary for you. And you got the itinerary and you saw that it involved driving on Shabbos and you're going to go, go, uh, go sightseeing on Friday night. So you would say to them, hold on a second. Uh, I have to be back in the hotel at least an hour before this time. Now, it's not, the, it's not the, 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 the tour guide's fault. They didn't know about Shabbos. It's not their job to know about Shabbos. It's your job to speak up and say, I have these limitations of Shabbos. And within the limitations, give you a great tour. So same thing. Therapists suggest things all the time that will, in theory, would, 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 would work. Um, but we have to let them know what our limitations are. Um, you know, if someone, you're giving an example where maybe it's not as obvious what the halachic stance is, but let's make it something more extreme. You know, what if a therapist says to not keep the laws of mikveh at all? So then obviously you say, ha, 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 I have certain limitations. I mean, even if you're suggesting, you might think that it's good, but it's not, it's not something I can do. So my point is like this. We have to be able to tell, unless it's a matter of life and death, right? And then you have to ask a Rav, and the Rav will tell you, Pikuch Nefesh pushes off everything else. But generally speaking, it's not immediately a life and death situation. It's, an, it's, a, it's a situation where trying one approach, trying another approach, adjustments anyways need to be made. You have to speak up and say, here are my limitations. So there's nothing, I wouldn't say, oh, this therapist, they, they're not aligned with Jewish values. I would say, but at, the, but at the opposite extreme, I wouldn't say, oh, the therapist said, you got to show infection, affection to your spouse in front of your children. You better do it. It's, I would take more of a middle of the road approach, which is I would tell that therapist, well, I have certain limitations that I can't do that. And by the way, uh, before I would say that to the therapist, I would actually call a Rav and I would say, by the way, um, I can't do that, right? Just to make sure, maybe I'm just being too from. And then the Rav will tell me, no, you can't do it, okay. Or let's say the Rav says you can't do it. Then I call back the therapist and say, I can't do it. Working within my limitations, what can we do to address these concerns that you're having? So I'm just saying as a general approach, you have to be the one to be your own advocate. As a Jew, you have to advocate for your own spiritual uh, moral compass. And also don't assume just because a therapist is Jewish or even because a therapist is, is Orthodox that they are going to know what your limitations are. Don't put that on them, that's not their job. It's just like the tour guide, it's not their job to know about Shabbos. It's their job to give a great tour, and then you tell them about Shabbos, and then they work within those parameters. So that's, that's one part of the question. Um, I guess I didn't really address the actual concern or the actual question, which is, do I think there's any validity to this? Um, but I, I felt like I first had to say a general remark 
which I think is important in, in so many situations that come up. But in order to not seem like I'm uh, wiggling out of it, let me address the actual specific issue and uh, I guess give my humble opinion on it. Just one before we continue. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, Rip Snare has to, uh, has to uh, say goodbye, and in a few moments we'll wrap up the uh, So Rip Snare, thank you so much for participating. Before you jump off, someone did ask one of the questions that came in. They said they're getting the tremendous amount of inspiration from this, and they love people's contact information. So anyone who is willing to share that or the website, what you do, by all means, I'm sure some would be interested. I would be very happy. Thank you for together. My last two sentences, again, humility. I think there's a faulty I think that there is a faulty presumption to imagine that the only way to show affection is through physical touch. Touch. Gazing at each other, gazing at each other, exchanges could be extremely, extremely intimate. And I think that children can grow up in a home with maybe they haven't, you know, they never saw. Rarely did they see their parents hug or kiss but they saw incredible, incredible affection. So, uh, and, and I'm gonna leave that to Rabbi Chase, and I'm sure that he has tremendous insight, and thank you all for this incredible opportunity. And yes, anybody who wants to be in touch uh, will make that uh, contact information available. And if you are in South Florida, please do join, for now it's gonna be Zoom, but God willing, please do join our Wednesday night at 5.30 at the Mic Drop Theater. And uh, a little bit of that Tamu Re'u Kitev Hashem. How goodly and how sweet. How goodly and how sweet. Thank you. Snare, to piggyback on your point, the story I shared earlier yeah. about the person who complained to their parents that they see um, arguments, they weren't talking about physical violence. They were talking about simply displaying the opposite of affection in non-physical ways. Yeah. So they're, they're... presumably the, uh, the opposite is possible. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Snare. Chase, back to you, and I think as well, we'll we can wrap it up with this thought, then we'll allow Mayor and uh, Simon to give final thoughts, and we'll bid adieu to our audience. You have to be unmuted. Yeah, yeah okay. So just very briefly, um, I, I hear the, the premise. I think I do, at least. So let, let me just say, there's a difference between something that's secret and something that's private. You know, they say we're only as sick as our secrets. Secrets are unhealthy because secrets are associated with shame. Privacy is a lot different. You know, what a bride and a groom do after they go home is not a secret, but it's private. We don't have to reveal the private things and make them public in order to have a healthy attitude toward them. I think that's uh, a misconception. Uh, having a reverent attitude toward human sexuality is, in my humble opinion, not achieved by trying to turn the private into the public. Um, we're not keeping it private because we're ashamed of it. There's nothing shameful about it, but it's something that's deeply personal. 
which is a concept that every child can understand when you teach a child modesty. And by the way, I'm not even talking about halachic modesty. I'm talking about even in the secular world, people at some point teach a child to not get undressed in public or to not say certain words in public. And there's a right way and a wrong way of doing it. One way is to tell them to be ashamed of it. The other way is saying there's nothing shameful at all about it. It's just, it's private. Something not something we, we share with others. So the same thing about the, you know, the intimate relationship between a, a, a husband and a wife in a home. Um, there are plenty of ways for children to understand that their parents have a deep bond without betraying the privacy of the inner sanctum, the holy of holies of the home, which is the intimate relationship between the parents. And it has nothing to do with secrecy or shame. Anyways, we could have a whole other talk just on this, but we're going on three hours already. By the way, time is flying. I could do this for another three hours. <laughs> That's been great. If I didn't have to go to the bathroom, I could too. I could too. But that's what the being bottle. that I should do that, right. Being that I should do that in private. So, oh. <laughs> Herb Simon, you want to give some, uh, some final thoughts? Sure. First of all, great honor to be here with all of you. Thank you, Ellie, for facilitating. And uh, there should always be more of this. And uh, there's nothing like soul connections, you know, cross-pollinating wherever we may be. I'll just, uh, so much has been said here and so many different areas covered. I want to just share something from my heart. Um, you know, it takes, unfortunately, it takes a, a plague, an epidemic, a pandemic, to appreciate things that uh, many of us have taken for granted, including our own families, children, spouses. We talk about spouses and friends, and for that matter, strangers. And I grew up in the environment of a very soulful environment around the Rebbe. And I have to say, it was very healthy in my case. And um, it always, uh, the focus was always on seeing the Rebbe for seven, eight hours standing and giving a dollar to each neshama that walked by without tiring. Love, love, love. I felt brains, and I saw it as a given that there was no us and them. There's one large organism called the human race and each of us is one piece of that and at times like this it becomes clear that this is what we need to rise to the occasion that's exactly what we need to demonstrate that ultimately and this is fascinating you think people being quarantined would bring out their fierce individuality you no know, i'm self-reliance uh, you know it's all about me 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 and indeed, it's done the exact opposite. Because you can sit in a stadium with 60,000 people cheering a baseball game, and everybody thinks they're like, oh, 60,000 Yankee fans or, or Red Sox fans or whatever fans. And the truth is, you all go home and nobody even cares about the other. And the fact that we are separated physically, bringing out that fact that we are essentially spiritual people on a physical journey, not the physical people on a spiritual journey, is extremely, extremely moving to me. And it's something that I, I want to just say to all of you and everyone listening, and hypothetically the whole world could be listening, frankly, is that we are all indispensable souls in one large 
musical composition, each of us are necessary. It's a cosmic song. God, for his mysterious ways, has chose that it should take now a new shape and form for the time being. Maybe for us to recognize that song, you know, it should be with the least, the less, least amount of pain, but I find it uh, a, a tremendous opportunity for us to connect in that way. So anyone out there interested in connecting with me, I mean me as me, but I'm as much as possible, with time allowed, feel free to do so. I feel like I've been trained for this moment. I believe all of us feel that way. You know, this is the moment where, this is the moment where maybe our whole lives, this may be the definitive event of our lives. And when we look back in 2020, we want to be able to say, we did something about it. We didn't just cower in fear. and We didn't just say, what's going to be? We did something, whatever we could do. For me, it's easy to access me. I have a website, meaningfullife.com. And, uh, and I'm just giving it out there. Feel free to contact me personally or my office and organization. And finally, I want to say one more thing, maybe to conclude where Rabbi Chase left off. Unfortunately, everything I, he said, I agree with totally. Beautifully stated, the difference between secrets and privacy. But unfortunately, and this has to be acknowledged, there's some people that hide behind religion because, and they're emotionally dysfunctional. And the fact that they don't show affection is not because it's private. It's actually maybe because it's a secret in their mind. And that needs to be addressed as well. Let's not confuse lack of affection with uh, religion and God. And many people who use God and use religion, religion is also an addiction. I don't know if you have RA, Religious Anonymous. Maybe there should be a group like that too. They don't have rooms large enough. <laughs> religious dysfunction, a person who's dysfunctional and religious often is far worse than someone who's not because they hide behind God. And I don't like to talk the negative because I believe totally that privacy is healthy, privacy, intimacy. But for those that are hiding behind them, they're able to abuse each other in front of their children. But they can't show any form of Let's call it healthy and halachic affection. Yeah, that's a big problem. That reminds me of the guy who was berating his wife Friday night by kid, after by Kiddush because she had forgotten to cover the challah. So he was embarrassing her in front of all the guests. How could you know? You know, saying how could you not cover the challah? You, you know, you know the way a man can do it officially. No one's listening, but everybody sees he's abusing her. You know, and everybody's uncomfortable. Then of course they go wash, and then of course he uncovers the challah and then cuts it. So there was a guy at the table who, uh, who knows a little Torah and says to him, let me ask you something. Why do you cover the challah? I saw you made a big fuss about covering the challah. He says, because we don't want to embarrass the challah in front of the wine. And he said, and embarrassing your wife, is uh, that's acceptable? That's an example of total obscene distortion of Torah. Where embarrassing your wife is, is midaraisa from the Torah. The challah, we find. Like the, the, the comedian that said, yeah, we cover the challah, not to embarrass it, then you stick a knife right in its heart. Anyway, I thought to end on a humorous note. <laughs> but thank you again. It was really very touching and more heartwarming to be here. And uh, hopefully it has a pu'ulun and shachas, has a perpetual impact on each of us and everyone out there. And let everyone know that there's a family for you. They were all here for each other. Rip Shays, you want to share quickly on the um, how people can uh, see the work you're doing? I know you've been doing a lot too put your message out into the world with soul worlds, with soul words. So you want to share just where people can see you and then, and then. Uh, yeah. Soulwords.org. 
S-O-U-L-W-O-R-D-S.org. That's the website. And also you can contact me through there. There's a contact button, um, which will get to me. You want me to take you out with the serenity prayer? The we version? Um, I'll take you out with just something that happened to me this Shabbos very quickly. I, I'm not a big Tehillim guy. I mean, I say Tehillim, but I'm not a big guy for Tehillim. Anyway, like the things that happen when you have no other outlets. There was no donuts in my house, so I couldn't eat donuts to, to, to take care of my anxieties. My wife didn't buy donuts this week. And I didn't have that many outlets. I didn't have what to do. Um, I had nobody to talk to but besides my children. So I grabbed the Tehillim. And I started for the first time in my life. Literally, I said the whole Tehillim and I, and I studied with, like, with Pirish Hamilus. So I'm thinking to myself, like, this coronavirus actually got me for the first time ever to say Tehillim. I have nothing else to do. And it's refocusing me in things that I've never done before. So at least I can encourage you. Everybody has an opportunity to actually have a personal relationship. You have nothing else to do. So maybe focus on doing things that's different. And I wish each and every one of you that this time should be a place where this, this time of darkness should be the light that comes as a result of the darkness should be an unbelievable light which will lead us to the Gula Thank you. But thanks everyone for participating. Thank you for the panelists. Um, thank you for those watching both live and uh, beyond. I started this by saying that Seven years ago, I started my journey of recovery. If you told me that uh, at some point in time, I'd be sitting with a panel of rabbis talking about spirituality at that point in time, I never would have believed you, but I guess that's what happens when you let go a little bit. Grateful to, uh, for this opportunity and grateful for uh, this message hopefully landing in a few people. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I also want to thank all those who tuned in live to that webinar and my guests who joined, because in many ways, it's what started this community and made me realize that there is a demand for this, and there are people who want to hear what I have to say, and people want to hear from the people who've been impacted by the people who've impacted me. 